a word to the wise. I think it's my turn to read. I think so. (laughs) (laughs) This is an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes, as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. That point this week would be through chapter 75 of Brandon Sanderson's The Hero of Ages. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. You should also know about us that we're very good at planning and deciding who's going to read things at the top of each uh, episode. So it's so true. We are so good at doing all of the plans all of the time. Mm-hmm. We have our, our notes all nice and like not color coordinated, but my stuff's always bold. And Crossens is always not bold, but that doesn't apply until like we're in the book part of the notes. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just kind of there. <laughs> we don't do anything else indicating who's doing what. <laughs> it's great. You raise a really fair point about that one break of logic that totally exists inside of the notes, and I fixed it. But <laughs> <laughs> you're a, you were a hundred percent correct until ten seconds ago. <laughs> There was there was no logic in this place. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that, today is our 10th and penultimate episode discussing The Hero of Ages by Brandon Sanderson, and we're going to chat about chapters 66 through 75. But before we do that, PJ, what are you drinking? Ah, uh, water. <laughs> I got a big old glass of water, and by glass, I mean literal vase, like a flower <laughs> vase that I've filled with water. And yeah, it's... I'd say it's a good 40 ounces. I've filled it twice now, but it looks like a normal glass in my hand. It is comedically tiny in your hand. <laughs> like, it looks like a normal glass in your hand, and it is 100% of ace. There were flowers in it when I was there. I remember because they were falling over, and I had to try to bounce them. Yeah. And it was annoying. But that is the vase. That. <laughs> that is, this is that vase. Yeah. <laughs> it's just in my hand. Like, here's it compared to the soda that I'm drinking afterwards. <laughs> For all of you listeners of whom I can obviously not see, the soda can very easily fits inside of the cylindrical vase, as well as is about third of the height, close-ish. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, but speaking of that soda, I've got my third and final variety of culture pop soda. So this is watermelon, lime, and rosemary. I've been really l- digging on rosemary lately. I've had it in... Hmm foods that have been eaten drinks i've been drinking today it was in the potatoes that we made we've been throwing rosemary on everything it's great cool rosemary is really tasty mm-hmm. and uh, we've got a plant outside that we just keep keep grabbing nice i am having a shirley temple black is what i'm calling it because that is shirley temple's full name really it's it's a spin on a shirley temple uh using the monday zero alcohol gin so really easy really straightforward two ounces monday zero alcohol gin one ounce lemon 0.75 ounces of simple syrup a splash of grenadine for that classic color and then clubs are to the top i prefer it this way prefer a little bit tamer on the pomegranate ad if that makes sense the pomegranate flavor ad from the grenadine and so i think that going with the regular sugar gave it a little bit more of that that spirit quote quote spirit forward because obviously no alcohol in it so mm-hmm. i think it's a great mocktail 
Nice. Yeah, I, I thought about doing another drink with that spiritless. I just didn't I didn't have the time to really like dig in and see what those flavors would work well with. So I might try to do that. Cool. And then per usual, having a tea, same tea that I've had every episode, because I have the same tea every episode, guys. Literally every time we do this. Before we talk about the chapters, PJ, how'd you feel about this week's reading? A lot of feelings. Stressed out in some cases. Oh man. I'm really happy with it. There's there's some crazy shit that happens. And I I just want more of it. So I think that's a good thing, and I think I'm just gonna stick with happy, stressed out, terrified. I thought for sure you would have stopped us like at the end of Vin getting all of her bones broken. Like I figured you would have stopped us at that point. If, if I were to put together the, the bricks and everything, but you didn't. And I thank you for that for my own like personal health and safety. Uh, (laughs) So yeah, I don't know. Happy in a a weird way. Happy about the fact that this exists. (laughs) I think I, find yeah i mean okay fair point that was a potentially logical point to end the reading at you're right i could have ended it right when marsh's when she catches marsh's hand after having all of her limbs broken but that felt for a couple of reasons that felt like the wrong thing to do because it it does end in a very climactic note for vin in chapter 72 however i don't think it quite gets us there with setting up Ellen and then also the the sort of climax that happens around Sazed as well. I think that we're not left on a good enough cliffhanger with Sazed to go into next week, if that makes sense, versus mm-hmm. going to 75, I feel like we get a good enough beat on Ellen and on Sazed um, to kind of know, know where we're going going forward. So, yeah, I think that's true. Plus, chapter 73 is so fucking good with Which one's that again? Vin flying around. Yeah. That's the one where Vin is, yeah, killing everybody. And that that chapter of like just counting down, we'll, we'll talk about it obviously, but that chapter is so good and I think is really important to like have inside of this. So I had also considered ending it there, but that felt like a little bit too hopeful of a note to put it out on. And I really like the idea of like our last thing with Vin this week being the poof. <laughs> that is, that's at the end of 73. I know. I'm saying I like that that's our last thing with Vin this week. Oh, yeah. I'm saying I yeah, like yeah. that that is. Yeah. Yep. Because it leaves leaves a good mystery for Vin. It leaves a good mystery for Sazed. It leaves us questioning what the fuck's going to happen to Ellen. You know, there's there's a lot of different little bits and beats here. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. All right. To Should talk, we get into those bits and beats? Let's talk about those bits and beats. Okay, cool. We start with chapter 66 here in our breakdown. We move to Sazed and Tensoon riding off in the mists. And I say riding because Tensoon has made himself into a buff-ass horse, <laughs> having merged the hefted mass of a pig to help him bulk up the horse's muscles. More than worth it for that extra speed. This is just what I... I forgot about this. <laughs> And it's such a it's such a funny thing to add. It makes a lot of sense. It's necessary to move around the story really effectively. What would you make of it? This is a mechanic that we have been sorely deprived of when it comes to the Chondra in general. Like as mist wraiths, they're able to like absorb all these different bones and all these different bodies and stuff. But I don't think we've had any situations where 
Akandra has absorbed more than one body. And holy shit, does it make sense? But then again, this is the only like non-human form that we've seen Akandra take in the part of Tensoon being the wolfhound mm-hmm. and now this buff ass horse. So there's not really a need to take additional mass from a pig and like tack it onto onto a human. Gonna not gonna build a fucking bodybuilder like just have Arnold show up in the middle of the fight though that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, I, I just feel like this was a mechanic that we didn't get to uh, explore that much, but I'm glad that we get to here. It is it is neat. I think that that's a great call to the sort of I don't want to call it like an homage, but it is like a coming back to almost the mistrates and like this idea that oh they're more connected than you thought right and i think this does justice to kind of coming back and being like yeah they are connected that's right (laughs) they are kind of similar um and this idea too that they can take mass from something else to bulk up another creature or to increase their own collective mass was something that was hinted at previously in earlier in this book uh but was not fully explored until now and now it feels great yeah so yeah it does yeah overall really dig it but buff ass horse is a great, great description. <laughs> He's a thick horse. Um, <laughs> two C's. Somebody somewhere. <laughs> Here's my request. Don't draw. Do not <laughs> draw thick ass ten soon. But he's got to be like biting his lip with the horse teeth. <laughs> what the fuck? looks over himself anyway all right there you go there's your uh, <laughs> your, right. your Crossland, uh, horrified imaginings well now we have a little bit more insight into what crossland likes <laughs> um how dare you tap our listenership to try to get off like that fuck you <laughs> <laughs> so we also get a lot of descriptions about the process of becoming a chondra as well during this ride on mr thick ass horse and how weak they are compared to the other creations of the lord rulers they these are like small the blessings are small metal spikes that make them much much more subtle than any of the other gifts that are kind of derived from ruin it also clarifies the strength of these blessings and that they store their power forever but at a much weaker percentage compared to the bursts provided by ferrochemy or allomancy mm-hmm. so yeah this is it's subtle because of the number of spikes right not because of the size of them I feel like we had this conversation last week and I don't remember what we actually landed on. I think the text implies both. Okay. Because I thought earlier it had explicitly said that the size of the spike didn't matter. But now I remember we went back through again. That was in relation to Ruin exerting the the type of influence that Ruin wanted to exert. That was the idea. Because gotcha. all, all, that, that, all that that spike... The size didn't matter for the goal that was trying to be that was meant to be accomplished. That was okay. that was what Marsh said basically in that moment in context. I gotcha. Now I yeah. understand more. Okay, so small little little things. This is kind of tangentially related, but you know how the Colossus have been like building their their own numbers back up by using their spikes, mm-hmm. like the spikes of the fallen ones, and that wasn't necessarily by design like they should have just kind of fallen apart fallen to themselves after the lord ruler died because their numbers wouldn't be replenished ever is that also true for Condra? do we do we have anything contextually saying anything like that like they wouldn't be able to 
give themselves their own, like bestow blessings upon mist wraiths using like the, the blessings from fallen Chandra. Like I know they can use other people, other Chandra's blessings, but I don't know what the, like if that's been talked about at all. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm trying to kind of work my way through this. I don't think it has been talked about at all, which I think is kind of the case. Like we don't really have a, we haven't gotten too much on the reproduction of mist rates or of Chandra outside of the fact that we know that they reproduce. That's really the only. We did get a scene where they were like, maybe it was the sevenths or, or the ninths were leading a new generation of like mm-hmm. not quite fully formed myth, mist wraiths. Right? Yes. Well, Chandra, but yeah. Or Con- Chandra, but mm-hmm. could we assume that they. I guess we can't assume how, how long they're in that state for. Yeah, we know that they are somehow reproducing. We we know that. And we know that they are still converting mist rates into chondra, just not at like what rate or the total number or like how any of that functions. We don't have the specifics on yet. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I think so. It's there's a there's Despite this being a very Chandra heavy section, there's a lot to explore still within the Chandra. Yeah. Um, so I uh, I really like that this clarifies one of the important things about, I think, hemology, which is that the power is just given by the spike and it enhances the powers therein as well. Mm-hmm. So that I feel kind like of idea that, that right? never, not, not so explicitly, if that makes sense, okay. but Pretty much like we, we had came to the conclusion, if that makes sense, of made sense of how like a lot of this works. Like with Spook and with Quellian. Well, we we knew we knew how the powers were stolen and then given. Right. But the question was, is like there the power lasts forever was kind of the difference. Right. So like there's no there's no time limit. There's no consumption on the power, which is what I was trying to kind of get at. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So which also I think begs an interesting question about the blessings themselves and why they don't, they aren't, there's no allomantic anything involved with the the blessings. Like clearly they're not, it doesn't seem like they're stealing pewter. You know what I mean? To have the blessing of presence or whatever it is. Potency. Sorry. Potency. Potency. Yeah. Yeah. There's that going back to the spook thing real quick. Mm -hmm. He had to take and burn pewter. Yeah. Should he not have had to? No, he should have. That was my point. Is that like it's it's clearly different when you steal an elementic capability versus where the blessing's power comes from. Ah, uh, okay. Now I understand. What That's what I was trying to get at. Yeah. Okay. 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 Cool. So the inquisitors have to like have a huge reserve of metals as well. Yeah, Vin has to steal a vial of metals off Marsh. Yes. Yes, she does. Yeah. So useless fucking spikes aren't even given power. Right. Still got to fuel up this car. Mm-hmm. Well, and ferrochemy, right? Like the all the ferrochemical powers still function the same, despite them being spikes that are physically implanted. Like they still have to store whatever the ability is that they've stolen. Right. So it all ties back. Mm-hmm. But that's why I think blessings are so interesting is because where? Where where did those powers come from? Like, to what degree or who were they stolen from? Or like, what what exactly? You know, like, it's that's kind of the question is like, where? How are those spikes created? Yeah, we have all these other precise readings on hemology, but I feel like blessings are the least explained and follow a slightly different rule set, which is interesting. So, 
You're going to drop some some knowledge on me next episode, huh? Um, <laughs> Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> okay. But the biggest reveal of this chapter... Uh, yeah. I'm always going to drop some knowledge on you in the next episode. You just don't know what knowledge it's going to be. Fight me. But the biggest reveal is the homeland's proximity to the pits of Hatson. Tensoon takes off and says it enters the homeland here to explore and learn things about his people. It feels finally like our boy is back at his full scholarly listnesses. Gotta love scholar boy says it. <laughs> Transforming. Evolving. <laughs> Who's that terrorist bud? Anyway. Okay. Um, I think this is an especially fun reveal considering the terrorist people have moved to this area as well. And that has not yet been addressed. We don't know if the Chandra know that the terrorist homeland is now at the pits of Hathsin. And I'm excited for shit to go down in that respect. So it is a really interesting change. Like the terrorist people are all in one spot in theory. Mm hmm. Especially with Sazed here. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting that they've all kind of gravitated towards the same point. And it seems like seems like we're setting up a final battleground with the way that, you know, Ruin's been chasing after ATM. So, yeah, it does feel like that, huh? <laughs> mm-hmm. We'll get to that later. But, you know, it's it's interesting that it's so pro- like what was your what was your first thought when you were passing through this? And you're like, oh, right next to the pits, huh? <laughs> I my thought went back to one of my predictions, which was the fact that there's a second pool there. Yep. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, maybe that idea has merit. You have no idea how angry people were. Really? Oh yeah. If you're like, fuck that, <laughs> that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, fuck that, that's bullshit. But I mean, it's very interesting. Obviously, that's not resolved, and. We don't have a pool there. We know that that's a thing, but Mm -hmm. I feel like I was really flippant about it, too. (laughs) Kind of. Well, you were like, well, it seems very clear that there was a pool there. Um, Yeah. Cool. With that, we go into chapter 67. Coloss also had little chance of breaking free. Four spikes and their diminished mental capacity left them fairly easy to dominate. Only in the throes of a blood frenzy did they have any form of autonomy. Four spikes also made them easier for Alamancers to control. In our time, it required Duralamin to push to take control of a Chandra. Coloss, however, could be taken by a determined regular push, particularly when they were afraid. So I think there's there's a few different things I want to talk about for this. Mm-hmm. One of which is based on the language used in our time. So that gives more sort of background, I guess, on how far in the future this person is is writing from. It feels much more distant now based on that. Like we knew it was ahead of time, but this feels like generations have gone by maybe. I don't know how in our time feels very separate. But I had been curious a little bit, just kind of, I don't remember how often I actually brought it up, but curious about their ability to break control and kind of push back against that control, like during blood frenzies and stuff like that. And this section made me think about that more and sort of come to the realization that they're controlled under emotional allomancy. So it makes sense and is more natural in my mind that high emotions could kind of overcome that, um, that control. 
So I don't think I have anything very specific to tie it to for that for that logbook entry, but just in general, it sparked that sort of thought process. That idea that, you know, well, the other interesting thing about the tie between emotional animalomancy and the number of spikes and the ability to be influenced, I think, is a fascinating one, especially the way that you kind of brought up the this idea of basically the lack of control over the the mind's emotions makes them more vulnerable because they're more fragmented, which I think gets into some really some other really interesting things that I don't think we have enough to talk about yet. All right. But it it makes my brain spin in ways that I hadn't thought. And then the way that you drew those connections, I was like, oh, that's an explanation for that. So, yep, we'll get there eventually. Cool. God damn it. There's one fruit fly. Won't fuck off. Cool. Awesome. All right. No hunting a fruit fly <laughs> on camera. A single fruit fly that keeps flying in front of my fucking face. Get back here. Where are you? Motherfucker. Cool. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so we move to Elland and Vin over top of Fadric City. Vin is playing at continuing to fool Ruin in hopes to prevent the Coloss from attempting to take the city. Of course, these thoughts and reflections are interrupted as an earthquake bursts forth from the world, shattering the fortifications, some of it tumbling to the ground. It seems as though the end of the world really is upon us. Yeah, you know, I think there's, I'm starting to think that there's something to those those problems that the world's facing. Like, I think it might be more than just, like, circumstance. Yeah. I think yeah. something's happening, man. I think I think this is the consequence of something happening. There's hmm. there's some cause and effect here. Weird. It's a natural huh. cycle. Oh, it's all it's all a natural cycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll explain it away in the news. It'll it'll be, you know, don't worry about it. I also immediately went to real world world parallels and I was thinking about the British heat wave. <laughs> like mm. people being like, Oh, it's very close to the heat wave that happened back in the seventies. And it was like, oh, yeah, that one day where temperatures peaked up to 38 degrees and it was very clearly a freak thing versus 40 degrees sustained for a week. Crazy. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's different. Oh, man. Look at the fossil records. For the listeners at home, I just slow blinked PJ's fossil <laughs> records comments. And we're going to leave it right there. <laughs> okay. Because, like, come on, folks, if, if you can't get on the, you know, the the climate change trend like we we have to do something fuckers so that we don't have earthquakes shattering our fortresses or just help it along we should really usher it farther you know yeah just hit the big old reset button i was gonna make a plastic straw joke but i couldn't think of one that it's gonna hold water continue that's kind of a funny joke anyway (laughs) (laughs) you don't get to say that to your own joke (laughs) i just did uh (laughs) Vin realizes what has to be done here, though, of course. A distraction has to be made to pull Ruin away from Ellen and everyone else so that they can potentially make an escape and take the focus off of Fadrix. So she takes off with a ploy, mentioning to Ellen out loud that she knows where the ATM is and has to go get it so that they can use it. Of course, we later learned that this was m- that Ruin mostly takes the bait here, which I think speaks to the degree of desperation that Ruin is in. Yeah. And I mean, we don't know what sort of level of attention is being put on every individual that he's watching. Mm-hmm. Um, probably a lot more on Vin than most people, but he's still got he's still got split attention in general. So understandable to not be able to pick up on nuances. Really, really clever tactic by her. I was waiting for some sort of trickery like this. 
and I think this was done really cleanly. The explanation and sort of like the inner monologue of Vin, though, felt really weirdly heavy handed for what we've seen from Brandon in the past. Like talking about how like this was a connection of love and of course Ruin would never be able to understand it because of that. Like It just felt different and weird. Fine, but off for some reason. Yeah, I... I have thoughts that I have written down at length of my my thoughts. This is one that I want to save until we're done to fully talk about. But I will say now, I agree with you. I do think it's a little heavy handed. And I think that it is a little I believe it's true. I believe that the characters in this situation believe and kind of think this way. Uh, But this chapter, that conclusion being drawn here feels like rushing to something as opposed to giving it its time and due in a almost more natural way throughout the chapter. Like this chapter is very short. I think it's maybe seven pages, if that. Not even, I don't think. It's it's really it's really a short chapter. And it feels like if this is the intent to kind of have this feel like a goodbye, which is what it feels like right now, doesn't feel very satisfactory in its own way. Because it feels like it should have been building in a different way or like had, you know, I don't know, a little bit more direct emotional of an emotional exchange between the two as opposed to a kind of in head expression. Yeah. So, okay. yeah, I think I agree with you there for sure. Cool. All right. With that, we move into chapter 68, short chapter. We have a bunch of short chapters this week. Like I said last week, it's like we have 10 chapters to cover. But in reality, it's like it's like our usual average of like six or seven based on, you know, page count. So, right. With that. We have our logbook here, and they're all really long this week, guys. I apologize. So, doing my best. When the Lord Ruler offered his plan to his ferrochemist friends, the plan to change them into mistrates, he was making them speak on behalf of all of the land's ferrochemists. Though he changed his friends into Chondra to restore their minds and memories, the rest he left as non-sentient mistrates. These bred more of their kind, living and dying, becoming a race unto themselves. For these children of the original mistrates, he made the next generation of Chondra. However, even gods can make mistakes, I have learned. Rashik, the Lord Ruler, thought to transform all of the living ferrochemists into mistrates. However, he did not think of the genetic heritage left in the other terrorist people, whom he left alive. So it was that ferrochemists continued being born, if only rarely. This oversight cost him much, but gained the world so much more. Fun question. Mm-hmm. Misrace can die, yes? I would assume. I'd assume so. If they couldn't, like if they were also immortal, then it's possible you could like reawaken all of the original generation of Farrakhamists. It's true. I, I want to bring something up. Immortal doesn't mean you can't I, kill them. Yeah, I, I was going to say, because yeah, it doesn't I mean invulnerable. Yeah, I know. because like the Chondra can be killed. We've actually seen one be killed. Yes, right. But they're explicitly called immortal. So I was trying to evoke the same similarity yeah i well i think that they do share that similarity um i think it's the biggest difference between the two is the consciousness aspect because Mm -hmm. they kind of walk around just eating whatever's in the way (laughs) right um so as it's alluded to there could hypothetically be an ancient ass mistwraith that just is a ferrochemist from a thousand years ago could be kwan kwan could be there Mm-hmm. Quan wasn't part of that crew. No, he was a Lendi's like advisor. Right. Yep. But he was yep. not. He did not go up on the mountain with him. Instead, he was writing warnings because he'd been trying for years to denounce him. 
since saying mm-hmm. that someone else was the hero, etc. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Maybe they just have Quan in a cage somewhere, like waiting for the opportunity. Yeah, but forgetting forgetting the recessive genes in the in the gene pool. Like mm-hmm. Punnett squares are like tenth grade, man. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta remember that shit. It's the easiest it's the easiest like genetic math in the world. Come on. Lord Ruler, you really didn't like you really didn't get a genetic breakdown while you were up there in the sky holding mm-hmm. preservation's powers. Come on. Too bad, so sad. What a what a dunce. What a dunce. So getting into the chapter itself, Sazed is led through the homeland to the Trust Warren and has his first interaction with the second generation. Ken Parr, as we know, is an absolute piece of shit. <laughs> uh, as their kind of conversation goes on, of course. Sazed, however, explains his role in terror society as a keeper, but one of religion specifically to try to get at the why of why he is here in this moment. And it's because there is this one single religion that has survived the Lord Ruler's rule. And it is the terrorist religion, the religion that the first generation and that the Chandra hold as their own. So he mm-hmm. needs to talk with the only surviving religion. Yeah. And interrogate the last one. Yeah, that's... Very true. Didn't we talk at one point about some far off villages having other religions yet? That there was a potential to, yeah. Oh, but that was that proved to not be the case. I think the book makes mention of like life at the poles or something like that too. And there's like, you know, okay, <clears throat> yeah. There are probably other religions, but as Sazed is immediately aware of them, this is the one, right? But yeah, fuck Kanpar, just. Garbage bag filled with bones. So I find it interesting that he explicitly asked to talk to the firsts mm-hmm. and they don't address that. They just like act like they're talking like they, they they just basically ignore that part of the request. And I don't know. That was frustrating. <laughs> yeah, it's very frustrating because we know how big of a piece of shit Ken Parr is from the earlier part of the book with with Ten Soon. So it's just like <sighs> really guy. Really mm-hmm. got to do this. But yeah, it's uh, it's very frustrating. Of course, Ken Parr doesn't bend to anyone's gum flapping gums flapping whatsoever. And probably just hears Charlie Brown ask wah, 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 whenever anyone speaks because he completely ignores, like you're saying, says it's requests. But the first, of course, here says it and what he's asking for. And we get our first look at them as they tell these seconds to leave the room. They're dressed in their original bones and refer to says as a world bringer. And so they begin to break down and interrogate the terrorist religion. And this is says little bit here. He gets to interrogate the one final religion, the only living religion. I guess it's not the only living religion. Technically people worship both Kelsier and, you know, but it's the last one that he hasn't interrogated. Mm-hmm. I really like the firsts, the mm-hmm. kindly old man, the old grandmothers. I think they're all, all men, actually, aren't they? I don't know. They I would say that they probably mostly are because they're they're referred to originally as pack men in the first book and right. whatnot. But I'm curious now that you bring that up, but continue with the uh, the, uh, the other reason why I have that assumption is because they just assume that the hero of ages will be a man as well and that seems like a very male thing to do just historically but fair point i'm conflicted about that love for them because they did our boy dirty 
when they had the opportunity to like pardon Tensoon and hear him out, actively decided not to. That's a fair point, actually. I hadn't I hadn't fully contemplated that. It is interesting that they deny Tensoon the right to a trial effectively. But I think that might be because they just weren't ready to hear the truth. They weren't ready for it. And now that they're having other people come and bring more than one piece of evidence, I think that's maybe why they're bending a little bit more directly. Okay. I can believe that, but still. If we're gonna if we're I, gonna call yeah. Quan Par a piece of shit for that, it's hard not to do that for these kindly old people as well. <laughs> it's true. It's true. They did fuck up, but at least it seems as though they're admitting that they were you know, wrong to deny. Yeah, maybe it's, it's a small difference. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, they're referred to uh, as 10 Pac-Men. So there's no further clarification on whether or not any, any sort of genders. So okay. gotcha. that's how it goes. So, yeah, I, I mean, there's, there's a lot here that I'm really excited to talk about with them, but obviously that comes later. So we continue grinding forward as these chapters do. <laughs> I, I actually do want to keep talking about the gender thing oh. in a different, yeah. different, different reason. I believe this is where Sazed starts talking about how they don't have traditional genitalia, but they still like have genders and it's hard to tell why or how like what the differentiator is, but they, that gets brought up a few different times here. So I'm expecting there to be something soon. Yeah, it, it is interesting. He does. I think this is the time that he brings it up. Cause he's like, they're kind of all over the place. And I think he brings it up again later. I want to bring something up that I just noticed when I was reading small thing, right? But similar comparison. I, uh, later we're going to talk about this in a second. Ellen mentions, you know, I'm a bastard a composition of a bunch of different things, but Sazed has a similar reflection here. He goes, it was a strange experience for Sazed. He had been many things in his life, rebel servant, friend, scholar. It's kind of the same sort of bullet list. You know what I mean? Like they don't directly overlap between the two of them, but it's like, yeah, it's just the other, the other composition of personality that we see between these characters. I just thought that was a fun parallel. Yeah. That I noticed. Yeah, I agree. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. We're going to move on to chapter 69 here. Hey, nice. All right. The question remains where logbook here. The question remains, where did the original prophecies about the hero of ages come from? I now know that ruin changed them, but did not fabricate them. Who first taught that a hero would come one who would be an emperor of all mankind. yet would be rejected by his own people who first stated he would carry the future of the world on his arms or that he would repair that which had been sundered. And who decided to use the neutral pronoun so that we wouldn't know if the hero was a woman or a man? Hmm. We're talking all kinds of gender today. Yeah. The book does. Mm-hmm. We're using the book's interpretation of gender, of course. So that's like, you know, it is what it is at the product project, of, pro, a product of its time. If anything, you would imagine Condra could be genderless or are choosing a gender in kind of the way that they manifest themselves. So, right. My only thought is if they can be awoken in some way, like brought back to humanity in a way where they would have traditional genitalia. Like I'm, I'm wondering if that's something that's going to happen. Like there, I have inklings of like ideas of what's going to happen with this. <laughs> okay. Weirdly. And I don't think it matters at all, but you're right. I think based on what we have from the Condra at this point, they should basically just, exist in that space right 
Right. Like a non identifying or like they could non identify, they could identify whichever way. Like it doesn't, you know, yeah. it is what it is. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But, and this, this is obviously oddly specific about the man or woman thing, you know, neutral pronoun or otherwise, but it, it does at the very least because we don't have anyone that is not identifying inside of the story. It does beg the question of which of our characters is it? Yes. Yes, it does. But I think there's something more to the the comment about we'd always assumed it'd be a man than just, ah, oh, that's how these old people read things. I think, mm-hmm. I, I think we're missing something. And I think there's something else pointing to it as a male terrorist philosopher. Yeah. What do you what do you think is pointing that way? I don't know yet. I think it's a document that we're missing, like some knowledge that they have that hasn't been documented and kept. So all we're seeing is this neutral pronoun hero of ages thing. But I'm wondering if there's something specific that's lost. Okay. yeah. Something that's been kind of lost in time or in some other way, shape or form. You feel like this would be kind of the you feel like this would kind of be the truth of the matter, though, when we really get to the conversation with the with the Condra later. I have learned that you could wait until the last fucking page and still get shit dropped on you from Branderson. So (laughs) I am not taking into consideration at all how close we are to the end of the book. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I mean, fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Cool. All right. So we go into the rest of chapter 69 here and we're back with marsh of whom mr branderson says is literally hating himself i i think that this is we were talking about heavy-handed i think this is maybe the worst case of tell not show instead of the entire book in which it is it's difficult and i i understand why it would be very difficult right here to do it any differently but because he can't do anything right he's locked inside his own body so he has no ability to make change or do change or show frustration but i i do think that leading in this way is just so direct that it's like okay i get it (laughs) because you told me not like you didn't express it in a way that i don't know this is an oddly specific complaint but it's one that we get here but we do get a unique taste from that perspective that i i find really important and interesting it's this idea that ruin truly fears vin when she did the duralman push into marsh's emotions and grabbed control of him sees that control for a brief moment it struck ruin and created fear in him yeah that's a twist man like mm-hmm. what could she do this is a god <laughs> This is a force of nature. Like, this is not something that you should, any single being shouldn't be able to strike fear into it. This is fucking crazy. So, I'm confused. I'm excited, but I'm confused. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know that the god has a body. We do. Mm-hmm. In a less traditional sense, though. I mean, a body fell out of the mist when preservation died. Yeah. Good point. Hmm. Boop. Boop. (laughs) But fair point. I mean, it's a good it's a good thing to be afraid of. So, you know, this entire chapter, I think, does a really good job of painting the kind of corner that Marsh is in in a big way and how he really has very little impact and can have very little impact in his world. But Marsh is sent on a very specific mission here as well to go kill the man of whom is holding on to the letter that Spook had spoken of out loud. And so he knows that there is something important on that letter that is going to be delivered to Vin and Marsh is sent to kill Gorodell 
and does dispatch him with relative ease. Although I will say, Gorodel puts up a pretty good fight for a non-Alamancer. And by non-Alamancer, I mean not showing any Alamancer capability at the moment. So, mm-hmm. yeah. At the moment. Uh, well, yeah, he's dead, so I guess <laughs> never mind. Um but I, it's it's really it's really sad because you know we've we've had we've been with Gorodel since the end of that first book right like he's always been a character in the backdrop doing important things running important errands kind of the errand boy but like a in a in a very real and useful way inside of the story and so it's a sad moment to to lear, to lose him but at the same time this is a critical delivery of information to Marsh to have him read this letter out loud so that Ruin knows. But in commanding him to read it out loud, Marsh also internalizes those words and it helps fuel his act of defiance later. Yeah, it does. I would wonder, though, if it ever if it crossed his mind at all that he could have just said the wrong thing in this moment that that he could have just lied. Yeah, I don't think he can push back that way against Ruin. Like Ruin seems to know all of and be able to control so much of his intent but okay. the only thing he can't do, I guess, is he can't see. So I don't know. Yeah, fair point. Yeah. He okay. maybe could have lied. That's a good point, too, though. Yeah. Yeah. He might have been able to detect it. I don't know. That's that's a toss. That's a tough one. It's kind of like Marsh is at this point where he has to choose when to shoot his shot, right? Is this where he's going to shoot his shot? Is this going to save everyone? Mm, maybe. You know. <laughs> maybe. But I don't know. What yeah, was on I, this? What was on this again? This was an explanation as to the metal leading Spook to also hear a voice in his head and for it to have also been the same voice that Quellian was hearing at the same time. The thing we fight is real. I've seen it. It tried to destroy me and it tried to destroy the people of Urto. It got control of me through a method I wasn't expecting. Metal, a little sliver of metal piercing my body. With that, it was able to twist my thoughts. It's really just a warning about the piercings, right? And they're important. Right. And that's um, that's what fuels Marsh's decision to pull out the earring later. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. And then specifically he remembers that. And I think it's also great that it's Marsh that reads this letter from Spook, too. Because it's like it's Marsh is still a it's so unfortunate because of the way the story treats Marsh, and it has to, because he's a he's a vestige of ruin, but he's still a member of the crew. And we get that in a later flashback when it's, you know, more about the way that he kind of abandoned everything that he loved and gave up. But yeah, it just. (sighs) Mm -hmm. Oh, Marsh. Poor guy. Yeah. Dang. Dang, dang, dang. So. Ding, dang, dong. Anything else on Marsh in this chapter? This nice 69 chapter? (laughs) No, I, I think we're good. Cool. All right. With that. We go into chapter 70 in the logbook. Quellian actually placed his spike himself, as I understand it. The man was never entirely stable. His fervor for following Kelsier and killing the nobility was enhanced by ruin, but Quellian had already had the impulses. His passionate paranoia bordered on insanity at times, and ruin was able to prod him into placing that crucial spike. Quellian's spike was bronze, and he made it from one of the first Alamancers he captured. That spike made him a seeker, which was one of the ways he was able to find and blackmail so many Alamancers during his time as King of Orto. The point, however, is that people with unstable personalities were more susceptible to Ruin's influence, even if they didn't have a spike in them. That, indeed, is likely how Zane got his spike. So if they don't have the spike, but they can still be influenced, how, how does that communication happen? 
I would think of it, or the way that I think of it, I should say, is more as like a almost a form of emotional alimency or similar, right? Okay. He's vulnerable, so it's like pushing in a direction. If that makes sense. If you gotcha. if you're one with a broken mind, and then so you're able to just kind of nudge as this power in the direction that you want. It's mm. my assumption. Yeah, no, that's that makes sense. Makes sense to me. So there's right. your there's your Zane explanation. Zane explanation um, as to why he did what he did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, cool. What a crazy person. But also this this paints Quellian very differently than what we had assumed. Mm-hmm. Because our our assumptions going or my assumption going back to the last couple of weeks or whatever it was last week maybe was like oh he's actually a pretty level headed dude and genuinely wants the best for this community. And it, that intent is being twisted by ruin when in reality that's kind of the case, but he was basically on the path towards it anyway. Yeah. It's he, he was on a bad path regardless. I think is kind of the way that this paints it, right? Like he may have had good intentions, but his mind was so broken. And when you read about the, I think one of the things that paints this picture for me is the way that they're brought up, right? Like specifically the um, both Beldra and Quellian have this super messed up home life. The the situation of like basically being like half ska, half nobleman and being like lied to by their parents for a very long time and then almost being executed and then trying to keep their like position of power, like trying to keep some, you know, authority over power in this moment of insecurity makes a lot of sense to me as to why Quillian would go and place his spike, given the backstory that we get from Beldra. Mm-hmm. Someone is lighting off fireworks. Anyway, shoot back. Get your gun. <laughs> I don't think it's catching it. Okay, fine. It's just loud it. for me. Yeah. yeah. I caught those. Those are two in a row. Anyway, um, it'll be fine. I'll cut it out. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I guess my core point being, like, it does paint Quellian more negatively, but I can understand why Quellian was broken in the first place, if that makes sense. Like, I, mm-hmm. I have a better understanding emotionally of where Quellian was at and why he would he could be led very easily to make that decision because it is something that gives him control. And so that nudge feels very... I still think he's a good person with the wrong, the wrong mind frame or the wrong mindset going into it, if that makes sense. Good intentions, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So one one of the things that I find really interesting, I was thinking about it reading it this week. This book doesn't have any human villains, actually. Any bad, genuinely bad humans in it. Hmm. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Well, kind of Quellian. Kind of. But again, like that's that's miss that is kind of hand waved away by this idea that we're talking about where it's like, oh, it's Rune's influence, you know? Quellian is maybe the closest to a genuinely bad person that we have. But again, you can blame a lot of that on Rune's influence. You can. But I guess then we have to kind of dig into the component parts of humanity, you know? And the way it's described is that humanity is made both of Ruin and preservation with a very slight amount more in preservation's favor. And that's the entirety of what's giving them sentience. Sentience. So, is it possible if everything bad is ruined? I think it's hard to say that there are no bad humans 
and they're just influenced by ruin because everybody's just influenced by ruin. I understand the logic that you're going for. Yeah, I guess I'm not trying right now. I'm not, but, yeah, I'm not trying to go that direction so much as much as I am. I think what this points to in a in a very top level way is that Brandon has a lot of faith in humanity and by by painting us a picture and a world that doesn't have any truly evil people in this story and it's just a supernatural evil that we're kind of fighting mm-hmm. is very interesting. I'm I not was, saying it's good or bad, but I I think that it does leave us in an interesting place as far as conversation goes because motivations are all basically aimed at survival so the way the direction i was taking it was more to do i mean obviously i went down the path already but additionally if it's slightly in favor of preservation in every human and if we're going good versus bad in that comparison there's always going to be slightly more good than bad yeah i mean this goes and i i think that this is maybe positing sanderson's own idea of, or like at the very least we can read it as a potential positing of the idea that people are more good than bad or have more potential for good than bad naturally is kind of the way that I read it from a top perspective, if that makes sense. And in addition, we have an in-world rationale as to why people are more good than bad. Yeah. Very explicitly. <laughs> literally, literally made of more good than of bad. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really fascinating when you look at the entire series, because that's kind of how the entire series is painted in in a larger light. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So far, you know, like so far, this is kind of that's the argument of like the Lord Ruler isn't that bad is kind of like, well, he was doing what he had to made some decisions that were actively destructive, but was under Rune's influence. And that could have been fucking him up and making him make poor choices. So. All kinds of things. Anyway, I just wanted to point that out because this is one of this is where I drew this conclusion is when I read this logbook. I was like, oh, this kind of gives a lot of people an out. The seriously, the one exception is Straff Venture. <laughs> In all seriousness, he is so bad and it is not Ruin's fault. Ruin had nothing to do with Straff's fucked up behavior. Do we know that for sure? We know. Well, we were in his perspective and we never heard voices. So that's true. But I mean, there's only two people we've heard voices with. I mean, three now. Four. Spook, Quillian, Zane. Oh, yeah. Finn. Yeah. I don't know. I bet he had a, it's, he had a secret piercing. It's, it's a supposition entirely, <laughs> but I just want to like, mm. it is even set of whom comes onto the scene like a bad guy ends up being a friend in the end you know what i mean right yeah anyway that was just a it was a rogue piece of analysis that i kind of had that i realized reading this logbook Mm -hmm. so yeah that's that's super i hadn't noticed hadn't taken notice of that but yeah that makes a ton of sense it's it's just a it's just a thing i noticed this time i was like hmm so no hmm. one's bad? Is that what you is that what you're telling me? Cool. Anyway, getting into the chapter itself. This chapter has a bunch of wonderful moments between Yeoman and Elend as they wait for their ends at the hands of the Coloss. Of course, they don't have time to philosophize, but I feel like Brandon, like we said last week, really nailed Yeoman as a character here. It comes through really, really clearly here and now 
in terms of like how they even like bounce back and forth with the way that they're talking and citing different books secretly at each other. It's just it's very clever and it really makes that character of Yeoman shine through. Yeah, I I can't quite figure out why. And maybe you can lend some light to it, but this is one of the cleanest characters that I've ever experienced, period, especially considering how quickly like we've we've come to know him. You yeah, know? It, he he reminds me of uh, in a way where just came onto the scene and was fully formed and very believable, I think, in part because of the natural command and by natural command, I mean, like command over the subject matter that they're known to be experts in so because they're the subject matter export they just feel like they have all of this authority already when they show up on screen right yeah i don't know that was that was my thought between the two that was my immediate that's where my brain went when you when you said you know cleanest characters you've experienced i was like reminds me of glorostes in that way but it does that's a good call yeah. yeah, I mean, I just I love I love their like little little bromance that they have. I think I think it'd be a lot of fun to explore in, you know, another another series, another novel. Mm-hmm. I feel like they make a good pairing of characters. So, yeah, fan fiction. Yeah. Sure. Fan fiction. <laughs> I, I wasn't exactly meaning it that way, um, <laughs> but fair enough. Jesus. They talk about the defining characteristics of an army and how it requires more good than strategy to win the day, but actual tangible hope in addition to the kind of aforementioned things here. What what did you think about their discussion of military strategy? Actual tangible hope. I, I think that's something that does go often kind of represented and under underthought during strategic planning, but morale, I guess would be the better way to put it, is incredibly important in almost every aspect even outside of military sort of planning. Hey, can we take a break? I'm so sorry. They're just yeah. like going off nonstop and it's picking up all of them while it's actually not that big of a deal because I can just cut out the audio. Never mind. We're fine. No, we, can, we can take a break. We don't we don't need to. I was just I was bothered by the fucking fireworks. Sorry to interrupt. I just it, You're good. It was like You're a good. nonstop barrage and I kept watching it peak up like half my audio and I was like, hmm. That's a fucking annoying. The problem is I don't know if they're going to stop. So I don't know that taking a break is helpful anyway. Talking about military strategy. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and the de- the delineation between like hope and like the, the importance therein is what you were saying. Yeah. yeah. So yep. I think maybe you would you disagree that like morale is essentially what he's talking about here? I hmm, that that's what Ellen's talking about with the, the as, kind as of far as like actual tangible hope. I don't know. I mean, I think that all of what they're both saying feeds into morale, like the cleanliness and like that. That's a part of morale. I also think that hope is a part of morale. That's, I think, maybe what they're both trying to get to. And I think they're both pointing to those things being necessary for morale. But I think that actual tangible hope is when you're in the face of something that feels unbeatable. I think that's more kind of what he's going for here. So like needing. But he's applying it a little bit more generally, I think, than he probably should be. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But needing something that's not like not fighting for futility's sake, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Okay. Because it feels like, okay, if we go charge into the Colossus, the Coloss right now, what do we get we out of it? Like we, fucked. we die in the earthquakes. Like we die to the volcanoes going off. Like we, it's a zero sum game right now. And I think that's kind of, that's where my brain goes with what Ellen's thinking. Yeah. Okay. 
So I, it's, it's such a complicated thing, right? Too. Like it's, I don't know. I, I like that you tied it all back to morale because I think that regardless, all of those things are direct influences on morale, being able to food cleanliness, you know, being able to food, being able to eat. <laughs> uh, I would like to food, please. Like, please food me now and not the spam foods, though. Can it be a good food? <laughs> fish? No. Could I have a fish? One fish, please. The whole thing. Eyeballs first. Okay. Anyway, I love Ellen's reflection that he's a bastard here as well that happens inside of this. He, to quote, says, I'm a bastard. In composition, not in temperament or by birth. I'm an amalgamation of what I've needed to be. Part scholar, part rebel, part nobleman, part mistborn, and part soldier. Sometimes I don't even know myself. I had a devil of a time getting all those pieces to work together. And just when I'm starting to get it figured out, the world up and ends on me. I just... I love (laughs) this little build in this little section, this little quote from Ellen, because I think it summarizes the issues that we had with Ellen's character to begin this story with where we're like the fuck dude like this doesn't (laughs) this doesn't mesh with what you were before and this is him recognizing that he he wasn't meshing and that he you know had to work that out Mm -hmm. yeah they like to bring it up but that pesky world world ending is really kind of a buzzkill huh It's, it's pretty bad yeah I I do like this sort of actualization of his character in the descriptions there but that quote that you just plucked and read maybe it's because it's top of mind and maybe i'm just wrong but it feels like darrow and it feels like written by pierce brown not brandon (laughs) sanderson to a certain degree in the way that it's kind of it's all explained is that what you're thinking just in the cadence i guess of that monologue Okay. And the use of the word devil. <laughs> That's fair point. Pierce does say devil a lot in hindsight. I can't wait to go back and read Dark Age before the new book. Anyway, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you, though. I think that the world ending is a very big buzzkill. And it does feel like it's got a more... This is an outward monologue, but this would be an inner Darrow monologue in a in a big way. It, it does kind of feel feel similar. It evokes those feelings. We've been talking a little bit about that. And you know what? I'm, I'm sorry, folks. We try as hard as we can to keep these conversations as separate as possible. However, with all of the big news that came out with Red Rising over the last couple of days, I've been unable to fully separate my brain. Yep. Same. Yep. So I don't think that was go. any spoiler, though. So no, 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 no. We we haven't spoiled anything like no one knows who Glorostes is. They don't know when they come into the story. No one has any clue. And definitely the way descriptions are written is also not a spoiler. So I think we're in the clear. Perfect. This chapter is so fucking dense with stuff. This is another like, I think it's 10 minutes in the audiobook or something like that. Like it's only a couple of pages, but there's still more to talk about here. Most of these other ones, we were like two questions and done to like hit the core points of everything that was said. But this is so much. Yeoman explains Alimantic theory in depth and the explanation between the number 16 and the importance that it holds inside of the religion, the number of original inquisitors, the number of Alimantic medals, the laws that governs the canton of resource and like all of these different things that the Lord ruler placed emphasis on this number 16. 
What did you make of the reveal of medals and their breakdown into categories? And I feel like this is something that we should definitely talk about and mention because we also see that we learn a little bit that ATM doesn't fit the categories. But what'd you think? I felt validated. <laughs> yeah, I felt very validated by it. It makes so much sense given the model that we have and the way that everything's paired off and fits together. I'm curious if Ellen had ever like thought through that before because that seems like something that he would break down and think about. Even if it wasn't explicitly written out, Vin knew that it was like sets of four and when she posited that there were 12, I don't know. It seems logical. Yeah, four sets of four. Yeah, it, it seems very clean and logical, especially when you get to the point where you're passing 12. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. And I, I think in particular, the way that they mentioned the way that the different metals are, the physical metals, the mental metals, the temporal metals, and the enhancement metals makes for a very interesting, like, quadrant breakdown as well in the way that they're influenced and then in each of those you've got your internal metals and your external metals so that's how you like further quantify you not only have your internal external you also have pushing and pulling metals so like the whole thing is a perfect grid we were talking about punnett squares earlier it's like a four-sided punnett square unfortunately i can't show you the really cool one because you don't know the other metals yet (laughs) we have to hold off on that for a little bit yeah that's fair yeah but it is very neat to look at and be yeah. like, yeah, fuck yeah, that's so cool. Because it does all work. But yeah, it's pretty neat. Pretty neat. You were pretty. Mm-hmm. You were pretty on it in terms of like the idea of like how these should break out and kind of the the importance therein of the of the number. So yeah, yeah. This chapter ends with a revelation: the mists weren't just making men sick; they were snapping them into alamancers. Preservation. Oh my God! Preservation was attempting to turn men into an army of powerful magic users for Velen, for Velen, Veland, Vin and Elland, or Elland to fight back to use to fight back against Ruin. I'm going to retake that last bit. Preservation was attempting to turn men into an army of powerful magic users for Elland to fight back against Ruin. Mm-hmm. Lots of thoughts with this one. Mm-hmm. I think first and foremost, why did some die? My my assumption is that those are kind of like the mistborn, and they're snapping a little bit too hard, and don't have pewter to bolster their recovery. Like that's my that's my initial thought. Like they're stronger. They're they're the mistborn. They're going to be the mistborn ones. Don't have any other. Like anything to back up that claim, but that's where I'm sitting at. Nobility had been marked as immune from the mist to begin with. And is that because there's already Alamancy in their bloodline? So this is this would be like a separate snapping. Like they've already gone through sort of the selection process at birth. And if that's the case, are 16% of people, like 16% of nobles, also mistings or alamancers in general does it follow that same trait well i'm not going to answer the last one for sure because that leads to some interesting things but i think that the reason that the noblemen are immune is because as a society everyone gets beat until the point that they may snap right and so you know who they are there's no the 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 mists won't snap them because they've already been snapped or they are incapable of snapping. Okay. So this this is 
the story of a girl who cried a river and drowned the whole world. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But I, I guess at that point, it would mean that these are the same, mm-hmm. like the same pools of people that are being drawn upon. So preservation isn't coming in and saying like, hey, some of these guys are going to snap from like a separate pool of power. So, right, right. Yeah, this yeah. is all because they're all out. It's all it's all elementic power, right? It's not it's it's activating the preservation within them and only so many have enough or only so many, you know, have the capabilities of even being activated to begin with. This fucks with the idea that it's all genetic though, huh? Like, could that, could these people have snapped otherwise? What do you think? Yes. Yes. Was that? Yep. Yep. They could have snapped otherwise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's entirely what the story is pointing towards is that they can snap regardless. And that while there is a genetic line that can be traced in, in terms of reproduction, we've already had it described that a little bit of preservation is in everyone. And this is just exposure to activate that right ability we know that allomancy is innately derived from preservation so i think if i remember correctly the argument is is that it is more prevalent in noblemen because of their direct lineage than it is in anyone else and we don't really we haven't been exposed to ska who have been broken and then would have the means or the resources to use it without any sort of noble heritage does that make sense it does. It also brings into sort of brings into mind Spook and that conversation mm-hmm. that he had regarding his grandfather. Yep. And that I I remember thinking that that story felt odd and out of place. Like it, it was it was like they needed an explanation for who his noble lineage was. Mm-hmm. Um, but that might be entirely untrue. It could be. I don't I don't think that that's meant to be. But to that point, I mean, why not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It poses some interesting questions that are yet to be answered as well, like that have not been fully. We don't have a full conclusion here yet, but all of those things that I've said and reiterated are within play because of the textual stuff that we've had up until this point. So I don't I don't feel like I've done any spoily boys. No, no, totally. As far as dying goes, did you address mm-hmm. that one? I know. Okay. Will you address that one or no? Nope. Okay, cool. Yeah, there, there are, there's still more to learn. Like, like you said, yeah. up until the last fucking page. So <laughs> yep. don't count on it until we're out. And even then, maybe don't. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, cool. All right. So that wraps up chapter 70. We've got chapter 71 and our logbook entry. There's something special about the number 16. For one thing, it was preservation signed to mankind. Preservation knew, even before he imprisoned Rune, that he wouldn't be able to communicate with mankind once he diminished himself. And so, he left clues. Clues that couldn't be altered by Ruin. Clues that had related back to the fundamental laws of the universe. The number was meant to be proof that something unnatural was happening and that there was help to be found. It may have taken us long to figure it out, but when we eventually did... understand the clue late though it was it provided a much needed boost as for the other aspects of the number well even i am still investigating that suffice it to say that it is great ramifications regarding how the world and the universe itself works hmm 16 is a pretty sweet number yeah yep. why do you say that 
Well, it's the square of a square. That's true. I think the first instance of that, other than one itself. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. It's a cool number. Fuck off. <laughs> I mean, it is a cool number. Don't get me wrong. I'm just wondering if you have any anything else to run on there. I mean, all the all the things that our our author talked about <laughs> it being the center of the universe. No, what it does tell me is that we could potentially expect to see something with the number 16 in other Cosmere books because he says that it's it's not confined to this world. It's how this universe works, right? Mm-hmm. And how the universe was created. Mm-hmm. Hypothetically, that's outside of ruin and preservation. Unless this just happens to be the the final battlegrounds for these two forces. But it, it seemed to me like ruin and preservation were confined to Scadrial. But I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You can't you just still smile have... and like nod at me all the time. I I mean, I, I have to do a lot of that. That's <laughs> a lot of the whole game of this show. So I'm sorry. Uh, but at the same time, I'm not that sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I do I do think that it does kind of point to kind of a larger, larger question about the number 16. And I think that it's unlikely that we're going to get answers anytime soon. And on top of that, I'm actually like doubling the time until we make it to the Stormlight Archive. So it's, it's going to be a while until maybe there are any answers there either. Yeah, I think I'm going to be lost in limbo for a little bit. Yep, a little bit, a little bit. It'll, it'll, it'll be fun. Cool. All right. This chapter, we focus in on Sazed and the Chondra talking about the religion of the terrorist people. What do you make of the conversation with Haddock and the rest of the first generation about Vin and her position as the hero of ages in the religion of preservation and ruin? Generally, I'm really happy for Sazed throughout this whole scene, getting to finally talk about and learn the religion of his people, the one that he's been looking for, the one that he assumed was just completely lost for such a long time. Specifically, though, I find it kind of funny that they're having the same conversations that we've been having and others in the story have been having regarding, like, if she was actually the hero and if it was just Ruin kind of manipulating everybody and... The sort of like we talked about before, the assumptions that it'd be a man, despite the general neutral gender neutral wording of the prophecies. This is kind of the point where I think personally, I started thinking more about that sort of idea that there's something more that we're missing regarding that part of the prophecy. But I don't really have anything super solid to latch onto for that. Sure. Yeah. It's it's a difficult, you know, I, I mean, it's not difficult to parse or anything like that, but it is it is like a consistent mystery. And it's not as though there's a whole lot to go on at this point, which is the same boat that says it's left in. Right. And that's why it's so cool that he gets to unlike all of these other religions that are dead, that he just interrogated and like broke down over the course of this book. This is the one that has real people that can really respond as opposed to just the recorded information that the keepers kept. So that leads to a really interesting place here where he gets to actually have conversations about religion and about faith and about these things with someone that isn't himself. Like he has been the sole master of religion and 
throughout this entire series, he's been pitching religions to people. And so this brings it back and really like focuses in and is like, I think it's great for him in a ton of ways. I I love this chapter Mm -hmm. and what it does for our boy, our boy. Yeah. He's in a better spot. Yeah. More or less for sure. For sure. And I, I think that getting back to the hero of ages thing and the general neutral, you know, you don't think that Vin is the hero of ages, right? Correct. Correct. I think says it. So you think says it is. Why do you think says it is? Because I think says it's the author and the author explicitly said that unfortunately they're the hero of ages. So (laughs) don't you think anyone with power would say that they're unfortunately the hero of ages? No, but the cadence and the way that he writes very much screams says it to me. Do you think that anyone who's given godly capability could potentially have a shift in voice as they become omniscient? I guess maybe. Sure. They're allowed to. (laughs) But. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, that sounds fine, I guess. (laughs) Oh, man. Fair point. I can understand. I understand all of the things that you're pointing to. Just trying to give you, you know. Different approaches. Make sure that you're not, you know, shocked when the when the hero of ages is unfortunately revealed to not be the one that you think it is. I have to tamper your expectations a little bit, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Is this making you question who you believe the hero of ages? No, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) I see. I have done my job. Okay, Mm -hmm. this raises the question of what my job is in the first place. (laughs) Yeah, what is your job? I don't fucking know. (laughs) In in this circumstance. I don't know. I hit the record button and then I talk and people like listening to it from time to time. So I appreciate all you out there. Finger guns. So says it also brings up his personal issue with faith that he's discovered and tried to come to terms with since Tyndall's death and works through it out loud for the first time with these forebearers of the terrorist people, right? Of these people of whom hold this religion. And I, I really love this exploration here. I think it's really fantastic and profound. I remembered that there was a little bit of an annotation that Brandon had written up about this specific section. It's one of the longer ones, but I pulled a little bit of an extract from it because I think that it's a good lens into it's a better way of approaching it than I would have written immediately. And I like how kind of succinct it is. So I wanted to cite it here so that we can talk about it. They talk about his search and how his search is something that can't be found, a religion that requires no faith in its believers. I find this fascinating. Religion, as it were, requires faith first so that you can enter its almost circular logic within itself as the basic tenets require that you believe before proof is given or shown. Meanwhile, science teaches that you get proof and then come around to believing. So that's kind of... I paraphrased four paragraphs into that effectively. Um, Meanwhile, or sorry, it says it's been searching for an easy answer that hasn't required him to commit. And he's not quite there yet. It feels he's not ready to commit to these things. And they kind of, I I think this shakes him in a, in a good way. Not like it's not like grinding him down to his base or anything like that, but it's like, Hey dude, like grab him by the shirt and being like, come on, do you you get it? (laughs) Yeah. I I Um, think in a, in a good way. Yeah. I think one of the the biggest things about this is the fact that his approach is looking at these religions almost as if they're in a sales catalog. You know? That's a good way of putting it. He's shopping for one. And he's not diving into them on a personal level because he he wants to find the perfect one before he commits that time and does that. So it's it's just perfectly ironic. (laughs) 
that that's exactly the piece that was missing from his perspective mm-hmm. and what what makes religion function in this sort of way like it's also kind of funny in a depressing way that this religious scholar is coming to the realization that his actual like scholarship in this is entirely not useful in trying to find truth you know like he's cataloging mm-hmm. all these religions he's he's making all these comments and like writing everything down but that doesn't have anything to do with this actual pursuit yeah i love that first and foremost i think that it's really important i think the fact that you address the fact that it's like he's it's almost like the meme of the venn diagrams that aren't overlapping (laughs) of like the two sides and it's just like you just need to push them together a little bit more dude like and that's that's what he was missing i love that especially when talking about his circular logic because it is kind of like he was he's spinning in circles and i love the comparison as though he's shopping through a catalog like that is such a fantastic visual because it's what he's been doing he's been looking for the perfect explanation as opposed to understanding that you have to go in to find an explanation or to believe in the possibility of an explanation to begin with and it's a a fascinating little divergence here inside of the story but it's says its character and I, i think it's really important and i i think it's great that you pointed out that it's unhelpful because it has prevented him it's it's been blinders on him because he knows so much about so many things that he can't he couldn't because he knows that there's so much potential out there through all of these different things, he was unable to discern even that one could be correct. And because he just knows that there's so much possibility, it's, right. it's fascinating. It is. I love says it says it's mm-hmm. probably my favorite character in the series. We're almost to the end. It's fair. <laughs> but yeah, I love says it so much, mm-hmm. but yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts? I think, genuinely what Branderson wrote that you kind of paraphrased you know what I think he understands what this author's talking about and he was able to <laughs> to get to the point of it pretty well yeah no I I, I mean I think that I, the reason that I like the annotation explanation here a little bit is because it really gives just a hint more just like the tiniest little hint more on what he was thinking. And it also goes to say that he's like, I'm a man of faith. I also believe in science, obviously. And I think that there are a lot of things that are incongruous there. And I think that that's something that a religious person has to like face in order to get to these points. And I think that this is just a great way of saying like, there's an incongruity between the two, but that's not necessarily perfect especially in a fictional story where you can also make the incongruous a little bit more congruous so yeah i i dug it that's why like i said i've tried to avoid these as much as possible i think i brought one in for like the last three episodes or something like that but this one the precise quotation is just very nice to work with on top of that right I say precise quotation. I didn't quote. I fucking paraphrased. Anyway, at the top of the episode, I explained this and I was like, I feel like this is the closest I've ever been to plagiarizing. So I have to make sure that I cite this properly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> cool. All right. I was going to have to call the, the cops on you. Yeah, the plagiarism police in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so there's the conversation of the craft of humanity and how portions of each of the gods ruin and preservation's bodies were given over to make the people but more preservation is he gave up a portion 
to give everyone the capability of becoming allomancers. This is kind of what I was talking earlier in the connection between the mists. Like this is that puzzle piece kind of shoving together. We already knew that there was a piece of preservation in everyone because of how it's stolen with hemallergy from the description of the coloss and the way that that interaction works in general. This is just a more solid like rationale or reasoning as it's been presented. Part of the weird part of the story is because we are reading it through all of these different perspectives and everyone is being provided with different levels of information. Brandon also has to make sure that every character is given the information that's relevant to them, which means sometimes we hear it multiple times. So I don't even remember where we heard that the first time. <laughs> like, Yeah. I, it could have been sure. a logbook, maybe. <laughs> maybe. I can't remember. But regardless. Um, I have a lot of questions though (laughs) okay what happens to the dead people and where does their power go does it get like reabsorbed and recycled into the system or is it just gone and that's how ruin has been like slowly getting comparatively more and more powerful additionally i don't know why i'm thinking about this right now but hemallergy requires that the person be an allomancer yes to steal Mm -hmm. their allomantic powers but it doesn't steal the powers. Yes. But it doesn't necessarily care. Does it, does it care? Yeah, it does. It cares what kind of alabancer you are or the the victim is, but Mm -hmm. could that happen pre pre snapping? Mm, That's a good question. Like, is that power inherent? I don't think so because you don't know how it manifests. So I don't know. I don't Mm. think so. That would, that's my best answer. Hmm. Now I'm just imagining a world where, like, now that they know that everybody has the possibility of snapping, we get another Lord Ruler situation, but an actually evil one this time, (laughs) Um, who basically just takes all of the Ska children, or like a certain percentage of them, and just knows, like, I'm dealing with like a 16 in 100 chance that I'm going to get a hemallergic spike out of this. And just murder, just murder children. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the science gets particular, like the numbers get particularly brutal in the way that you could actually use those in dangerous ways. Now that you mention it that way. Yeah. yeah it's kind of kind of scary. <laughs> You'd have someone truly use the the system that way. When comparing the body sizes of the two gods, we stumble into a dire revelation, a thing of the first contract as it's. Even said to us inside of this little section, Rune is coming for his body, and it is here in the homeland, in the trust, a pile of atium as they rip open this hole in the ground that they'd been storing this. Thousands upon thousands of nuggets in the ground. Fun fact, in the book, it's actually beads, which means it was corrected from nuggets from the audiobook. Interesting. Um and they proceed to explain how the Lord Ruler hid the sheer amount of ATM that had been collected from the eyes of Ruin and society at large. As we know, metal in general is hidden from Ruin. Like, he can't see into metal. He can't see metal. It's blinding. But this is interesting. This is interesting. Now we know what Ruin's body is, and he's essentially Metal Mario. Mm-hmm. He's just walking a around. Mm-hmm. A Metal Mario? Like... Yeah, you've seen Metal Mario, right? Yes, yes, I have. Yeah. Because I actually of think, I think we've explicitly talked about him. It's true. Or maybe that was Metal Bowser. I can't remember. 
I think it was Metal Bowser, but I mean, the the rationale stands. The reason we were talking about it was because of, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Metal in Mario Bros. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I'm just, how big is this pile? I think it's still probably thousands not and that thousands. big. Thousands and thousands of little nuggies is still maybe smaller than you and I. I think it's bigger than that. I think the assumption is, is that it's a lot. Okay. But I believe you, but I don't want to believe you. I want, I want ruined to just be this tiny little metal dude that has short man syndrome. <laughs> Played by Chris Pratt in the movie. You know, it's all, it's all the same. Exactly. Can you imagine if Ruin was played by Chris Pratt? That'd be like, <laughs> I can't actually. I physically cannot. <laughs> I mean, would it still be his like unaugmented voice inside of Vin's head all the time? Yes, for sure. <laughs> I wish I could do a Chris Pratt impression. I, you know, at this point, me too. And I'm just imagining his character from Parks and Rec being Ruin. Yeah. Not like, not as though, not as though Chris Pratt is trying to make Ruin serious, but as though, what's his name, stumbles into (laughs) the power. Oh my God. Andy, Andy Dwyer. (laughs) Just imagining Andy Dwyer. So fucked up. And now I'm imagining preservation is Rob Lowe, and that's where we're at. <laughs> Little shadow of Rob Lowe jumping up and down, waving his hands, yes or no for things. <laughs> doing, like, just doing jumping jacks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Short, dark-haired man, big prominent nose. I mean, he doesn't have the prominent nose, but we could fix that. We have prosthetics. Yeah, yeah it's fair. Anyway, I'm so sorry for the derail. Yeah, Mario Pratt. Yep, for sure. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely the case. Oh, wait. Um, he played Mario, too, didn't he? He is playing Mario. It's not out yet. <laughs> it's going to be so fucking dumb. It's going to be so fucking dumb. <laughs> I, I'm very excited for how dumb it is going to be. <laughs> I think in the same year, he's voicing Garfield and Mario, which is like, okay. Anyway, we've got so much more to go. Yeah, actually not that much. Most of these chapters go pretty quick. Yep. So, but seriously. Were you at all shocked by the ATM reveal that it was here? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was. I was surprised by it. It wasn't like a shattering discovery because it makes a ton of sense. So it wasn't like a fuck, oh shit, mind blown kind of deal. But it was surprising. And I genuinely thought it was inside of the Inquisitor Spikes. <laughs> I yeah. really thought I was oh, right I on know. that one. <laughs> <laughs> I was I'm for sure making you drink for that. That's why I was like, I need you to fully explain your thought process here. <laughs> I need all of it. <laughs> it would have made sense, right? It could have, yes. Yes. If I didn't understand a little bit more about hemology, it totally could have made sense. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah, that was surprising. But in hindsight, in, rest- in retrospect, we get some more reveals about the actual like ATM trade that we hadn't actually realized like we knew that the ventures dealt in like transporting the geodes, but the Mm -hmm. fact that they've been like opened and siphoned off and like reclosed like a, I don't know, teenager raiding a liquor cabinet was clever, really clever. 
Unlike a teenager raiding a liquor cabinet. (laughs) 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 That the obligators had been doing it the whole time. Yeah. I I really, I really like this explanation, man. I I think that it's especially powerful because of its proximity. It's like they didn't even take it away from the pits. They just moved it around the hill basically and put it on the other side. Like that to me is ingenious on the part of the Lord ruler, right? To be like, I'm going to hide it so close. You're never even going to know. Like it's, it's mm-hmm. right next door. <laughs> yeah. And it allows for, it allow it, it would allow for a reasonable explanation for any sort of security going to and from there. Mm-hmm. Not, not protecting the stash, but protecting the like production. But there wasn't yeah. really much in the way of security in general. Right. Kind of oddly. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I don't know. Yeah. And I think there's there's more strength in the the way that the Condra also work for the ATM then as well. Like the reason that they work for ATM only is because they're trying to remove it from the pool to put it in the pile with all the other ATM. So it's just this like perfect, mm-hmm. perfect economic system. And the reason like Condra do not like humans. And that is very clearly evidenced by all of the interactions that have been had for the most part between, you know, or renew, et cetera. They don't really like contracts and owners and things like that. And you even posited like, well, why the fuck are they doing this? And I was like, well, cause they get paid new team. And you're like, yeah, but why the fuck do they want the ATM? And this is, this is why they're, they're literally, they've been delegated by the Lord ruler to prevent ruin from coming back. Basically. They're the mm-hmm. most important of the three creations. Yeah. It's all coming together, folks. Mm-hmm. The end uh, is in sight. But there's still rules that I don't have. And I would like you to give. Give me I, the rules. I cannot give rules. Uh, Raffo? Give rules. Raffo. Yeah. You know I'm fucking reading the rest of the book once we get done. I know. I figure, yeah. There's only like 60 pages left, so it's not like there's a whole lot. But regardless, I I do want to at the very least mention that ATM isn't on the normal Alimantic table and Mal-ATM. That's confirmed, basically, that something is wrong and off and that they do not belong where they belong. We talked a little bit about this earlier, but, you know, outside of Gib rules, did you have any reaction to this? Well, it makes me wonder what the fuck is Mal-ATM then? Like, is that another god's body hmm. i mean it's it's a it's an alloy so it's mostly made of atm so no is the probable answer but oh that's a good question if they can like turn it all into malatium instead would ruin be able to use it as his body if they turned it all into malatium yeah that's a interesting question i you know what Here's here's the thing, PJ. As a part of being a VIP to the Brandon Sanderson convention, of which I know you're not, I think I get a Q&A. I'm a part of a small Q&A. I don't know that that question's been asked. I will double check the words of Brandon before I waste a bunch of time. But I think that's a genuinely great question. <laughs> hmm. It's an obvious, so. obvious solution to all their problems, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Good one. Nice. It, I mean, it's interesting at the very least. Like it's a and I think. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that there, but I think it's a very interesting question, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure on the answer. Cool. Uh, 
So cool. Chapter ends cutting back to Tensoon looking over the plains and seeing that Tyrion, one of the many ash mounts, has exploded, losing its top and destroying everything in a flow of lava. The world truly is ending. No, stop. Don't, don't, please. Please, world. You're too cute. You're, you're too, too cute. pretty. No, world, you're so hot. <laughs> don't explode. <laughs> I mean, we get the name of one of the mountains. Is it still named that if it's gone? For the record, Tyrion's been named in every book, <laughs> but. Has it? Yeah, because it's the largest ash mount. It's in the site of Luthadel. They say that they can see it from over top the city walls and other things like that. So it's been named, but it's not a focal point. Now it's exploded. <laughs> yeah, now, now it doesn't exist anymore. Right. It's, now it's not the biggest mountain. <laughs> right. Or Tyrian, not Tyrian. I think it's Tyrian or something mm-hmm. like that. I probably typed Tyrian because, you know. Lannister. With that, we go into chapter 72 and the longest logbook, the single longest logbook. So I apologize. It is literally six paragraphs. Yes, there are 16 medals. I find it highly unlikely that the Lord Ruler did not know of them all. Indeed, the fact that he spoke of several on these plates in the storage caches meant that he knew at least of those. I must assume that he did not tell mankind of them earlier for a reason. Perhaps he held them back to give him a secret edge, much as he kept back the single nugget of preservation's body that made men into mistborn. Or perhaps he simply decided that mankind had enough power in the ten metals they already understood. Some things we shall never know. Part of me still finds that what he did regrettable. During the thousand-year reign of the Lord Ruler, how many people were born, snapped, lived, and died, never knowing that they were mistings, simply because their metals were unknown? Of course, this did give us a slight advantage at the end. Ruin had a lot of trouble giving Duralamin to his Inquisitors, since they'd need an Alamancer who could burn it to kill before they could use it. And since none of the Duralamin mistings in the world knew about their power, they didn't burn it and reveal themselves to ruin. That left most Inquisitors without the power of Duralamin, save in a few important cases, such as Marsh, where they got it from a Mistborn. This was usually considered a waste, for if one killed a Mistborn with Hemalurgy, one could draw out only one of their 16 powers and the rest would be lost. Rune considered it much better to try to subvert them and gain access to all of their power. So that would mean that the other few, like other than Marsh, that he alludes to would be misborn already that got converted into Inquisitors, yes? I would assume, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because Marsh was given it by killing a misborn as opposed to, yeah, everyone mm. else. Seekers make great, you know, inquisitors, as mentioned before, because they have that enhanced power of bronze then kind of innately. Seeker and getting a misborn is better. Fucks me up. That's fair. Yeah. Just side note. Yeah, that's Um, fair. Then. So I, I guess one thing to break down that we haven't really talked about, but was addressed earlier, but is relevant here now. Marsh has 20 spikes. Mm hmm. There are 16 medals. Mm-hmm. Presumably, spikes wouldn't stack, right? Oh, but there's also ferrochemy. Yes. I don't remember about the eyes. I feel like the eyes are the same. Like there are some are the doubles. same. Yeah, I think I think that's maybe the one double, but I don't I don't remember, and I'm not 100 percent certain. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think outside of that. 
That sounds about that right. Fear to me is a separate set of mm-hmm. powers. Yeah. I would assume it'd be one spike per power. You know, it, hell, it could even make sense that it's pushing and pulling is one spike in each eye because they do still see those elementic lines and both pushing and pulling create the blue lines. So mm-hmm. it would be a shock to me if it weren't one for each of those. Right. Okay. But I believe they are both iron spikes. Cool. So we know those don't line up one to one with the alimantic metals as well. Necessarily through spooks. He had the iron or the steel steel sword gave him the ability to burn pewter. There are rules. Yeah. Yeah. I'm starting to draw in closer on them. Closer, my friend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. So we open this chapter with Vin arriving in Luthadel and it has begun to rain. She feels the pulse of the Inquisitors chasing her from behind and knows that she only has so much time left. The city to her feels empty, but still grand in all the ways that I had at the beginning of the story. I, I think that it's really cool that Brandon chooses to come back to Luthadel here because this is where the climax of every story has happened as in Kretik Shaw. And so being back here feels like a homecoming and Shitty, it feels like shitty it's homecoming. the signal. Yeah, right. Every time. But it is it is still the place where things go down. Mm. Yeah. So I think this scene, or maybe like this chapter, is what's depicted in the audiobook cover art. Yes. Yes. This okay. is the cover art. Yep. That makes me realize there's cover art here. Mm-hmm. Which includes a railroad spike, and we haven't we haven't seen any railroad spikes. There are several of them, so that's an interesting thought. But yeah, I do I do like that. That's kind of a return to this incredibly powerful place. Not only from a well, strictly from a from a historical standpoint at this point. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's I think it's great to return. It's necessary. Ultimately, I totally agree. So as she's here, she has a conversation with Ruin of whom has almost come to the conclusion that this is a wild goose chase, but he can't rule it out entirely. And that frustrates him to no end. Vin tells him he will never have it. And Ruin fumes with rage. Lightning illuminates the mist and the Inquisitors are working their way around her as the storm continues to rage in the backdrop. And this just feels so cinematic as you like, it's like the lightning or the, the, yeah, the lightning and thunder crash and you get the illumination of the 12 men in robes surrounding her. And it all just feels, it feels like a movie. Are we supposed to get from this, that ruin is connected to the storm somehow through his temperament or is it just kind of good scene setting? I would. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I feel like it's closer to a connection to the storm itself because we know that rune can impact the world and like cause earthquakes and other things like that, the volcano. So why not weather? Like, I think that makes sense. Okay. I, I feel wasn't like that's sure if that was like something explicit up. one way or the other. I think in an interesting way, you could point to it being again, kind of similar to Alamancy where like it was raining, but then when rune got pissed, it exploded and it became, you know, more than rain. I think that makes sense. Fair. Yeah. I'm cool with that. Yeah. 
So then the fight begins in earnest. Vin is doing her best to fight against them. Teeth bar, daggers out as she falls through the rain, slapped around by the various Inquisitors. Her miscloak bills around her, and she even has like a superhero landing where she gets slapped into the ground but lands on her feet while continuing to fight. And this is just such a great scene. The combat here is incredible. I think it's so well written. Yeah. Yeah, that's... It. Talk about cinematic, man. Like This mm-hmm. is something I absolutely... Cannot wait for some sort of adaption or adaptation. Also, I believe I was wrong. I think this is where the 20 spike thing came in. This is, I think, when it's specifically mentioned. But, I mean, effectively, it's the it's the same thing. Yeah. It's the same chapter. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Vin, obviously, is fighting, you know, 13 Inquisitors at the same time, bouncing between the different spires of Kritik Shaw in a very cool way before she is finally, after she manages to impale one and kill one, but then she is finally subdued and Marsh begins to snap her bones one by one. Mm. Fuck. <laughs> oh, dude. What the when absolute he gets to the fingers, fuck. when he's breaking the fingers one by one. I would like that to stop happening, please. Uh-huh. That's all good. <laughs> we're we're good on bone breaking. Marsh, you don't have to do any more of that. She gets it. <laughs> She's learned her lesson. <laughs> we we don't need we don't need any more of that. One she was one was enough. Very good from here on out. <laughs> I mean the the broken leg too, like the I mean that being the first one to just like take out and smash and Ugh, it's just. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Ugh. God, and so from there, I mean, I, I'm in shock. But we we see Vin defeated and being gradually broken piece by piece by ruin, and we move to Marsh. And man, is this just so hard to read? His every will doesn't want to do this. He even he's reflecting on all kinds of things, his different failures in his life. The line that we were just talking about, where he breaks his fingers in the middle of a thought. He's like, Kelsier treated her like a daughter. He thought as he broke her fingers and like then draws this comparison to Mare and is like, well, it, with that in mind, it would have been like a daughter that he would have had with Mare breaks another finger. And it's just like this whole like line of he's trying. He's like, this is not something, you know, that he wants to do, but he can't stop himself because yeah. ruins in control. I think it um, speaks to sort of the separation between him like his body and his his mind at this point. Well, and it's he not finally a taken back. Well, he'd finally taken back control of his mind a little bit for the first time, right? This is mm-hmm. that moment when he finally comes out. But it does draw that stark separation still. Mm-hmm. Like he was really just trapped in like a little corner of the back of his mind because if you think about the rest of the book up until this point, he's gotten perverse joy out of inflicting pain on people, yeah. like total sadism. And here is when he flips that. It's like he doesn't want to break her fingers. He's not resisting, but he doesn't derive joy. It's it's disgusting to him and it hurts. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. And then it's tough to read. <laughs> it's it's very tough to read. I, I think it's well portrayed. I think it's important because it does actually give, you know, it Vin is defeated in all earnest. Vin the Mistborn is broken here and couldn't take what was happening but there's there's a quote here that follows which is the moment that marsh breaks free and to read it here vin had spoken of her insane mother reen said that he came home one day and found my mother covered in blood she'd killed my baby sister 
Me, however, she hadn't touched, except to give me an earring. He recalls this with the letter that he killed Gorodel for and rips out Vin's earring with his last vestige of remaining will that he's been saving up all book to use as opposed to kill himself. He frees Vin from ruin. Mm-hmm. I mean, he could have done this a few bones ago, though. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think I think I it's really smart for him to. Have, I mean, like, so I think the line is like he's going up to the collarbone very clearly to break those next. And that's when he takes control is when the hands are already close. So <sighs> good job, Marsh boy. Yeah. yeah. Good boy, Marsh. <laughs> Good, good work, man. Is it brutal too? I mean, just the way that Marsh has been talking down to himself. You know, we we were talking about like hating himself and like being self-contained earlier, and that being a really big tell moment and whatnot. But this, I mean, this is just where you can really feel that push, and it feels like he's he finally kind of gets to be a hero for a moment. You know, it's that mm-hmm. brief brief flash where Marsh is Marsh again for the first time in books. Yeah. So Vin snaps awake. The moment that that earring is removed from her ear, Ruin subtly, suddenly disappears. And just like that, the voice in her head spoke no further. The mists snap to her, kind of flowing around her again, now being able to do so without the hemorrhagic spike in her ear as she lays there dying. And a voice whispers in her head. From the Well of Ascension, of course, it's the same power after all. Solid in the metal that you fed to Elend, liquid in the pool you burned, and vapor in the air confined to the night, hiding you protecting you and giving you power. And I love how this is like not overly emphasized in the text, but it is Michael Kramer shouts that final line. And it, it just, it gets me with shivers every time the end giving you power. And this echoes back to that very first training that Vin and Kelsier had together when he said that the mists gave her power. And it just, it wasn't quite clear how literally that that was in this circumstance. Vin sucks in the mist, lending her body strength, her entire body burning like metal. She's burned in her stomach, pain disappearing entirely. Marsh swings for her head and she catches his hand to end the chapter. That was a lot. Thoughts? Yeah, thoughts. Does she not have her earring on in the other two times? Correct. Okay, I don't remember that being a part of the fight with the Lord Ruler. The Lord Ruler yanks out the earring. Ah, with a pull, which seems wrong. Why? Why could he do that? How could that be a thing? Mm-hmm. And then she pulls pulls it out to get into the well, right? Yep. Okay. And then she pulls it out when she or she doesn't have it on when she's imprisoned, right? Is that the other time? No, Marsh. So it's the scene with Marsh, right? Okay. And she uses it to kill Marsh, in theory, pushing it through his head. Right. So yep. she's using it as a weapon, and then it's removed, and then she can draw up on the mists. Right. Okay. I will say the Farrakimist part still holds true at this point. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. What a way, like, that would have been... Like we mentioned at the beginning of the show, that could have been a good stopping point. For this. It could have. Yeah, but. It, it very well could have. But I would have felt a little 
a little cheated for the other characters because we aren't quite there yet. And then it would have been, there's a lot of stuff that happens over the course of this entire part, which is like, you know, three episodes at this point. But you know, when, when can we end? When, when do we have to keep going? So Mm -hmm. I really thought that it made the most sense to continue through here to not have a very chunky last week because it would have been like a hundred pages and we wouldn't have done it justice. Um, No, that's totally fair. Yeah, that was my thought. Yeah, it's it's a crazy, crazy set of chapters. And I I love that quote, the the whole talking about the power of preservation and its manifestation here in a in Mm -hmm. a big way. And that that voice in her head. Yep. 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 Mm -hmm. What crazy shit. Yep. Cool. So with that, we go to chapter 73. We have our logbook to start this off. I've spoken of Inquisitors and their ability to pierce copper clouds. As I said, this power is easily understood when one realizes that many Inquisitors were seekers before the transformation, and that meant their bronze became twice as strong. There is at least one other case of a person who could pierce copper clouds. In her case, however, the situation was slightly different. She was a mistborn from birth, and her sister was the seeker. The death of that sister and subsequent inheritance of the power via hemologic spike used to kill that sister left her twice as good at burning bronze as a typical mistborn. And that let her see the copper clouds of lesser alamancers. Okay, so that right there may have just answered my question from before. The ferrochemy answer? Yeah, it's not. No, not the ferrochemy the hemorrhagic spike into an unsnapped person. She was a misborn from birth, which means it's predetermined that she will be a misborn. But hypothetically, she's not snapped at birth. Same for her infant sister. Yeah. Okay. In all that likelihood, probably isn't snapped yet. So you just spike everyone in the hopes that you get a power, but you'd have to use the right type of spike. That's the problem because there are different spikes for different powers. So you, you would have to have some other preternatural ability to determine or a lot what more to people. <clears throat> I mean, <laughs> you're basically suggesting Russian roulette to figure out. <laughs> like to, yeah. And if you get it wrong, you yeah. Anyway, would you, would you make the whole thing though with the death of her sister being the one, <laughs> the, the earring from the mom and the whole thing? I hate how much of that information was just right there. You know, it was all right time. fucking there. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah. And then it, he spells it, it out for you and you're like, oh. Yep. Totally. Totally makes sense. I had assumed that that spike was already like a hemallergic spike before. And I had even wrestled with the idea of like, it leeches power. Like it, it, yeah, it leeches power so quickly. So it must have been like, used and then embedded in somebody and then like removed and then used on Vin. Like I hadn't even tied together the death of her sister because I had forgotten that that was like at the same time. So. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Yeah. Yep. Right fucking there. It is. It was right there. Cool. I mean, it's it's sweet. I, I really love this. I love all the reveals that happen here at the end that that really paint this story and as complete as it was at the beginning, because we really did have so much of the information in front of us the whole time, mm-hmm. which is fantastic as far as for like storytelling goes. It's like, no, I just didn't put the puzzle together. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was there. 
Cool. All right. So the beginning of this chapter is a wonderful montage hopping between perspectives as we see the dramatic changes in the mists as they all seem to flow from Tensoon, from Breeze's perspective, from Ham and Ellen, from Spook, all seem to be flowing back towards Luthadel or in the direction of Luthadel. And all of them variously are called to action in their own ways. Breeze and Alrianne and Spook are immediately putting the people into the shelter as quickly as they can, trying to retreat into the storage cavern. Ham and Ellen see that the Colossus have begun to retreat from their pressing attack on the city, meaning they're going somewhere else because they've maybe had a realization of where... I mean, they've maybe had a realization. It, their, their withdrawal is clearly a piece of information. They also notice that the mists, of course, are flowing back towards Luthadel. They have to make all these judgment calls all of a sudden as things are changing as day breaks. I love that it's also as day breaks because the, I believe it was Marsh that says this will, this is the last night before, you know, kind of the whole other scene happens as it was. Yeah. So the, the mists rushing towards Luthadel make me really kind of question more and more what they actually are. Like, what are these mists? They're concentrated i don't know a tune it is is it preservation's we've, body we've, entirely we've gotten this answer yeah this we is have? provided by the chondra they said that it was the body right, right? yes 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 yes. yeah okay cool so or a so portion of the body just like the well is a portion of the power you know mm-hmm. okay that makes sense but i want to know why spook was so like quick to his proclamation that everybody had to be rushed to the storage centers did we get any sort of explanation for that like nope hmm. kelsier came back man kelsier came back <laughs> how could kelsier have come back he came back started talking to spook again yeah you think spook so good to like check himself for metal I'm like nope all right this is actually kelsier this time let's <laughs> fucking do it <laughs> let's fucking go let's fucking go oh you're holding to that no, no, I okay. think um, I was like Jesus, <laughs> much in the same way Vin was able to have that presumably preservation contact where Michael Kramer screams. I'm guessing <laughs> Spook had a similar sort of thing. Contact. Contact. Yeah, that that makes sense. I I think so. You know, like it feels like it's the most reasonable thing to say that that's probably where he got the information from or he just come came to realize it i don't think it's that egregious to say that it's like this appears to be the end of the world hide in the cave <laughs> what else are we gonna do um that tracks you know, good point yeah yeah but to that point i mean we obviously had spooked before hearing the voice of kelsier it felt like the preservation voice potentially you know so yeah so uh, we move on from the kind of montage of all these different perspectives and we come back to Vin flying around fueled by the mists, her broken bones no longer bothering her. And she's fighting the 12 remaining inquisitors, absolutely making mincemeat out of them. Removing two eye spikes is enough to do enough damage to kill them. And man, this scene is just like a flurry of emotion and power for, for me in a way that like seriously moved me. I think every time like, I don't know what it is about like underdog success or like coming up from underneath such like egregious circumstances that makes me go fuck yes and like really moves me emotionally. This scene has gotten me every time I've read it. I loved it. I teared up a little bit. I was just yeah, I get I get the little goosebumpies and I'm like yeah fuck yeah this is good writing. Loved it. Loved it. So her broken bones aren't bothering her anymore. But is that to say that they're still broken? 
I don't think so. I, okay. I believe that they're physically because she's using them fully. Right. I know? was going to say she'd be all floopy. Maybe that maybe that would help her movement if she's not confined to like just floopy. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck for a couple of reasons? <laughs> like, all right, um, you and your floopy shit. I don't know if she's not. As rigid anymore. True. True. She can move around better. So she's being fueled by the mists. Mm -hmm. Presumably that means she's not burning metals that she's ingested. Yes. Correct. Does that mean she technically has access to all of the metals? In theory, yes. That would mean that she has access to all of the metals. Hmm. And, uh, but yeah, but well, I was just going to say, like, but does she know how to burn them? You know, like, does she know how to use them? I mean, you can just try shit. Vid, just just try shit. Vid, just fucking do it. Vin, let's <laughs> fucking right do it. Burn aluminum. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh. Um, also, does that mean mm-hmm. she has access to ATM? Great question. I want to know. I want to know do these you think? things. No. What do you think? You think she doesn't have access to ATM? Correct. Okay. I don't have a reason. Other than, like, it seems too different. Yeah. I mean, we know that it kind of breaks rules, so. Yep. No rule breakers allowed in the mists. No rule breakers. Okay, cool. And man, I mean, like, the way that she's flying around here, flying, she flies up above the clouds, flying among the stars, falling with a brilliant little bit of, like, the the mist trailing her as she falls through the clouds. I just, I love this. I love the description of it being a tether and the whole thing kind of like she's being pulled back down to Earth after launching up over the, it's just, it's so great. This is such a beautifully translated scene that I really appreciate the the whole thing of, I think it's brilliant. It is. Everything about this this chapter is brilliant. Like, mm-hmm. I fucking love it. It's really good. It's really good, man. All the mist continues to flow in, charging her with power, and she just explodes over the city that we've spent so much time in, destroying the Lord Ruler's palace and just destroying these monstrous men. It's just incredible she dispatches them and like counts them off as she's going. And I, I just love that like little bit of extra like, I'm getting them all and I'm getting them all and I get all the deaths and I'm tallying them up in my head and one, two, three, all of a sudden fall on the ground at the same time. And it's so good. Yeah. Just absolutely chaotic, destructive power. It's Mm -hmm. so good. But I will say there is one place in this world immune (laughs) to such nonsense. Mm -hmm. And that is the pooping room. And... (laughs) I'm sure that's still untouched. The little pooping room just holding out. Yep. I bet you're right. <laughs> <laughs> just the little dome within a dome. Mm-hmm. The house within the dome. Yeah, I, I love it. I absolutely I adore. It's just so cool. So after dispatching all of these inquisitors, Marsh is the last one left and he's lying there having been, you know, hurt and disabled and out of power and Vin is just being consumed by this power almost like she's just charged with it as all of the mists have flowed in her direction. And it's this vast, incredible power. 
And then we cut away from Finn's perspective and cut to Marsha's perspective. And, you know, he's under this assumption. He's like, I've won. Like, I, this is okay. I can die. It's all going to end. He made a difference in the world for the girl that he loved, even though she's long dead and mare and his brother as well through the rebellion at large. And he's, he's done. He's accomplished everything he needs to. Vin manages to pull out one of his two spikes. There's intense pain that he's feeling, but he's ready for the end. And before she gets to the second one, she hesitates and then vanishes, leaving a little shadow where she used to be. I have a couple theories. Okay. One is this was another of the metals that she decided to burn. Okay. The other is a cosmic transportation of sorts. Like she is being transported somewhere that gets into other stuff that I don't know if we want to address. But we have addressed. Are you talking to Elantris? Yeah. Okay. If you haven't read Elantris, skip forward 30 seconds. If you have, which you should. If if you haven't, go listen to our short pour. Read the book. Listen to our short pour. Come back. What's uh, what's your little pretty key point? Well, if if the liquid in the well is the same Mm -hmm. essentially as what's in the mists and she's being consumed, like she's taking in so much of this mist right now, maybe it's enough to like effectively be a similar pool that could transport you somewhere. Do you have uh, any assumptions on where the transportation is? Either to a different planet or to the well of ascension. Okay. Cool. I just wanted to clarify that because I think that's important. Cosmic transportation is so vague. It's I was trying like, to be vague. I was trying intentionally to be vague for right. And I'm turning this into a prediction, and I'm trying to make sure you're specific. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> fair point. I mean, and it leaves it leaves with a really interesting question of like, did she have control over it? I like that you suppose that she might be burning the metal as well, or like a different metal, mm-hmm. and that that moved her potentially. Yeah, or made her vanish. Made her um, invisible. Like we don't yeah. know that she's gone. There is the right. I, I don't know if that was like a this thing disappeared from where it was displacing mist. So now there's like a little outline that's slowly fading. Mm-hmm. Or if it's like a an actual sort of shadowy representation. Yeah. 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 I get that. I totally get it. I think it's great. Good. Mm-hmm. Cool. Cool. With that. We go to chapter 74. This one's short, but we've got a logbook, of course. That is not short. <laughs> not, I mean, it's not that short. It's kind of short. She once asked Ruin why he had chosen her. The primary answer is simple. It had little to do with her personality, attitudes, or even skill with Alamancy. She was simply the only child Ruin could find who was in a position to gain the right hemallergic spike, one that would grant her heightened powers with bronze, which would then let her sense the location of the Well of Ascension. She had an insane mother, a sister who was a seeker, and was herself mistborn that was precisely the combination that ruin needed there were other reasons of course but even ruin didn't know them there's one other thing that's needed like there's that combination that ruin needs but it's also a time frame thing Mm -hmm. like he needs it he needs them to be ready and influenced by him enough by the time the power shows back up and like almost exactly at that moment so I get that maybe you could find that combination on a long enough timeline, mm-hmm. but finding that combination exactly when you need it is an ent- entirely different thing, you know? Right. 
Right. So there is something else there. Yeah. It's it's either is incredible luck, which is possible, or I don't know, sort of time bending abilities of some sort. Okay. Like being able, we, not being able to affect sort of genetic lineage or anything like that, but being able to kind of shift when they occur. Maybe. Okay. I don't know. We know from a base standpoint that Brandon does not allow time travel inside of the story. Just as a, that's, that's like the core rule of the Cosmere. Just so you're aware, time travel will never be introduced. That is never an answer because it, it complicates things far too much. I don't, you're not suggesting time travel. I'm just giving you that information because you're saying that like, I I was thinking more like timing. He, he found that combination or even like could tell that there was genetic predisposition somehow for that combination mm-hmm. and just delayed them. Mm-hmm. So they're born later than they maybe would have. Sure. Sure. To line it up yeah. more closely. But that makes sense. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but it does make I mean, some sense. It's a reasonable, like it's an assumption. It mm-hmm. is an assumption and it does feel like a, one that we have enough credence to at this point that, you know, take it, take it reasonably seriously. So, all right. Day breaks inside of this chapter with no mists. And I think that this is fascinating as the world is just kind of a world. Once again, you know, the, the red sun overhead, it's a very different place without the mists there as the world begins to heat up despite the ash clouds and everything else. Like everything is still going very wrong. (laughs) Um, And there's just so many changes in circumstances here. Ellen and Yeoman share a chat on the roof and the people move themselves to safety like they have everywhere else. What do you think about the world post mists? I'm I'm confused by the heating up as well. And I know like that's explicitly stated like this shouldn't Mm -hmm. be happening like this. But yeah, I I don't know what to make of it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's fair. That's fair. You're not necessarily supposed to have the answers yet, but it is. It's an interesting question to have kind of piled on here. Um, Yeoman says something interesting here about religions and the place of non-believers in the plan. Now that we've sort of come to the end of the Lord Ruler's plan, I think it's safe to say that his religion, that this religion he founded, was one that was intended to have an expiration date. It had a mission, and that mission, while not yet fully fulfilled, as we've seen in the story, is beginning to move to a close. Yeoman chooses to give Ellen his last beat of A-team on his forehead as sort of a way of signing off and saying that this will be more useful for you. What did you think about the sort of conversation that the two of them shared regarding, you know, the religion and the plan and everything else. I mean, obviously I don't, Yeoman doesn't point that to this being the end. This is me pointing to, you know, mm-hmm. the Lord rulers religion really just being a, yeah. a checklist of events that he knew was going to happen. But I think, I think this bead does kind of, there, there's a few different things that, I think this bead represents this giving of the bead. Mm -hmm. One of them I think is recognizing that this is the end Mm -hmm. and this is way more important than anything else that they're dealing with. It's also recognizing that they're no longer direct adversaries in a very like tangible way. Mm -hmm. Um, Great point. I'm, I'm sure there's a bunch more like sentimental things I could come up with, but I, I think those are the two key points of like the, sort of truce and allyship 
and then recognizing that this is the end and everything, including like the religion that I've been holding on to for so long and so fervently needs to, and to a certain extent, he's not even like giving that up, but he, he's saying like, you're not a devoted member of this religion, but you're still a part of this plan and I need to mm-hmm. help you with this. So. Right. Which I think is a really fascinating thing, right? Like that is kind of a, you know, I mean, it's got to be within the religion to try to help people along the point that that can get dicey, of course, when it starts to create conflicts of interest, you know, and that's like religious conversions and stuff like that. Like that's that becomes an issue. But at the very least, you know, saying that this is me helping you enact the plan in a tangible way that I can help you do it, I think is is great. Yeah. In this moment, Yeoman also explains something to us that we had presumed, but had never been confirmed until this moment. But he explains that he's a seer, which is an ATM misting. Would you would you make about this? You know? It, basically so, it's exactly what you had worked out yeah yeah so uh, i do like the term seer i just think seer and seeker are too close in both word and meaning as far as like english language goes mm-hmm. um that it gets a little confusing on my end just from just from trying to keep it all straight but i think in this section he also mentions that there there is hidden information that the Lord ruler was keeping and it it kind of implied that there was other secrets as well. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So including all the metals, right? Like we get that from our hero as well. Yeah. 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 But just more, more intrigue. Mm -hmm. Yeoman better not fucking die at this point. I need those answers. (laughs) Do love, do love a little yeoman. Yeah, we'll have to see. We'll have to see where it goes. Mm. All right. We go into our last chapter of the week. Again, it's a it's a short one, relatively. So we had a couple of long Vin chapters that took a lot of time. This is our longest episode in a while. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But going to chapter 75 here, we have our logbook. Each hemallergic spike driven through a person's body gave Rune some small ability to influence them. This was mitigated, however, by the mental fortitude of the one being controlled. In most cases, depending on the size of the spike and the length of time it was had been worn, a single spike gave Ruin only minimal powers over a person. He could appear to them and could warp their thoughts slightly, making them overlook certain oddities. For instance, their compulsion for keeping and wearing a simple earring. Mm-hmm. But that compulsion is only strong. I, I, you would think it's only existent when she's already wearing it, right? So if she takes it off, is it just kind of habit that drives her to wear the earring? I think it's that ruin influence, right? It's not, I mean, he's influencing the habit, yes. Okay, oh, okay, all right. I, I think that's one of the real interesting things is to say, like, how much of habit forming could a creature like ruin really influence in someone, right? Like, how much... Could they shape a person so they would make certain decisions in the long run, I think is mm-hmm. an interesting thing to consider. Like something like an earring that had become like a consistent a consistent thing to do all of the time. Right. Um, and there's some sentimentality that Vin has for it, you know, from her mother and everything else. But that's like backwards sentimentality, which is why it's, you know, from the beginning of the story, it's kind of an intentional oddity. And uh, yeah. Yep. Some questions Wild. there. It's fun. Yeah. 
from like literally i think it's like page 40 or something like that is when it's mentioned the first time it's really early on and because it's mentioning her only possessions yep yeah there it is Mm -hmm. i've been here the whole time as sam reich would say a little game changer joke for you guys there at home (laughs) anyway All right, so Sazed spends time here in the Contra home studying his religion, the terrorist religion, and man, this chapter is really intense analysis of Sazed's faith in a great way. The idea of chance, of religion and belief, and the decision inherent between his contradictory beliefs that he's holding at the moment are just fantastic. They've been alluded to in the chapters before as we've spoken about them, but I, I really like how hard he's trying to, you know, he, he can't have it both ways, but he is trying so hard to have it both ways. <laughs> This just feels like such a great resolution to say it's like religious journey here and thinking back on it, it, it was really frustrating how stuck he got on the raw logic of everything. Like he's just been shooting himself in the foot the entire goddamn time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Right. So, yeah, yeah, this is, it's, it's, it's a nice way to kind of bring that to a head. Yeah, I, I adore it. I think that it's it's a fantastic way of kind of thinking about the whole thing. And like you said, it kind of brings it to a head. The reflection on the contract that says it has regarding the first and the reverence or lack thereof, I think, is kind of a really clever one because they knew Rashik as this man, you know, and just it's it's less a holy document and more. This was the dictation of the plan. It's now our time, like a crew, like Kelsier's crew, to enact the plan. And it's just it's just a different degree of, you know, a different layer. And now the fact that the mists are now missing, the Chondra are in disarray, especially in regards to the mists' sudden absence and what that means for the coming days. It's to be the day of the resolution. Their species mass suicide, as we had talked about in the beginning of the novel. Uh, what do you make of the first conclusion and kind of the the argument that happens here? So, first of all, the first contract. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I never made this connection. The name, the first contract. This is the contract with the first generation. Yeah. It's not like... Like, that's all that means. That's where that connection is. It's also the first contract. Yes. It's both. Yeah. Okay. So, there's that. Anyway. The comparison between the first and the crew is something that really, really stuck with me. Okay. Um, I... I'd like to dig deeper and and see if there's something even more spooky about it, but spooky specifically like spook specific, like, well, okay. yes, <laughs> specifically and generally, um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but if there's something yeah. driving that sort of group of people and if there's a, mm-hmm. an even tighter comparison between the two, like if, if this is like, an external force pulling these people together. I don't know. We'll find out. As far as the resolution goes, I think they're jumping to a conclusion a little bit too hastily. Based on what they say here, the verbiage is that they must remove the blessings. Mm-hmm. And they attribute that to suicide. That's not... That's not stated as far as i can tell right Uh, right do they know for sure that this would kill them i don't know and i think that's much like they they are constantly asserting that they are of preservation not of ruin so 
much like Vin removing her earring and having access to the mists, with them removing their spikes in a time when, like, this mist shit's going crazy, potentially just give them access to the power of preservation through the mm-hmm. mists, like Vin is able to, to access. Because then the spike's not there anymore. There's nothing tying ruin to it. I think, I think really it's just a misunderstanding of what those spikes actually do and how they would interact with the world as it stands currently. Maybe, maybe that would kill them in the past when there's not like a surge in perseverance, uh, per, preservation power. I think I keep saying perseverance. You've only so done it twice over the last two episodes. So you're fine. Okay. I don't know why. Cut it. Like, you're fine. Fair. But yeah, that's my, that's my thought right now is they're going to remove their spikes. Some of them will and realize, oh shit, this isn't mass suicide at all. This is something different. Something different. Because what would be the Lord Ruler's motivation for, for doing that? Maybe stopping Ruin from like taking control of them? I assume that's the rationale, but yeah, because maybe if he gets close enough, he can see them and then could take control of them and then have a, you know, army of shapeshifting dudes. Right. But I guess the other part of that though, that would be odd is because it's so close to the end. What's he going to do? He's already exploding the world. Like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And right. They're the ones kind of keeping his body secret. And safe. But if he knows where to look, maybe he can, you know, then he can pull through and influence yeah. through the force of metal. So it could be, but it's my assumption at the very least. So that's fair. Yeah. So we that's go from a lot of, a lot yeah. of scattershot thoughts, but I, I think they were all really good. I think especially, you know, that, like you said, that adamancy that they're of preservation and ruin. I, I think it's even, more deeply interesting because the terracemen were of preservation, right? Like the terracemen were people and as being people, they had preservation inside of them. And so then when they were turned into mist wraiths, they were of preservation and they got spiked. Like it, it, I mean, you know, it's, it's maybe a little bit of a misconception that they've carried through time because of, you know, their origins, and that kind of ties together nicely with this reveal now that we know that they're terrorist men or that they were terrorist men. Right. And even the reveal that like terror is another word for preservation in the language was like, mm, nice, 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 nice. Mm-hmm. Um, even though there was no way that we could know that it was just like a little, little salt packet of flavor on top of the whole thing. Yeah. Maybe risk so. is ruin. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So terrorists. Terrorists. We'll see. We'll see. But then the chapter ends with a rebellion. Familiar thing that Sazen knows quite a bit about, as well as a coup of which Sazen also knows quite a bit about by the second generation who are 
aiming to take the power of the first and prevent this mass suicide resolution from occurring. Kanpar fears this instability and that is ever present in what he's decided to do here by removing the power from the firsts and taking over, preventing the resolution from taking place or being further announced or scaring the other generations for something that they ultimately feel isn't necessary. What do you think of, of this way to go out? I really don't think I can fault him for that. I mean, I can fault him for other stuff. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. But if he genuinely believes that his people are being misled to their doom, I, I can't I can't fault that. I guess I think my issue with Kanpar is that he's ignorant to facts. He's ignorant to the things like the mist falling and and the the mist having disappeared or the ash falling at extra levels and is very to me in a strange way and I know that we talked about this a long time ago inside of the episode but he feels like the climate denier like he feels like a climate denier version yep. but for you know the end of the world. So while I think that there is a version of Kanpar that I could not fault if someone proclaimed this without maybe a little bit more evidence. I think this version of Kanpar, I can completely fault. <laughs> That's a good point. That's um, a fair, fair argument. Yeah, he just feels a little too. I had never drawn the climate denier comparison before, but now I can't fucking help it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's good. But yeah, cool. Yeah. Other thoughts? Head empty. Head empty. Head empty. All right. Got to fill we end the next section. True. True. We. This is the last week that we end with a logbook, which is interesting. So here we go. I've always wondered about the strange ability Alamancers have to pierce the mists. When one burned tin, he or she could see further at night, looking through the mists. To the layman, this might seem like a logical connection. Tin, after all, enhances the senses. We are the layman in this picture Uh, the logical mind however may find a puzzle in this ability how exactly would tin let one see through the mists as an obstruction they are unconnected with the quality of one's eyesight both the nearsighted scholar and the long-sighted scholar would have the same trouble seeing into distance if there was were a wall in the way this then should have been our first clue Alamancers could see through the mists because the mists were indeed composed of this very same power as alamancy Once attuned by burning tin, the Allomancer was almost part of the mists. Therefore, they became more translucent to him. Yeah. So I had actually thought about this earlier Mm -hmm. on. And I explained it away for myself by reckoning that it wasn't like fog. And it it wasn't particulate like that. It was something Mm -hmm. entirely different that you could kind of see through for a little while Mm -hmm. so i feel i don't know kind of validated in in a way after reading this i remember us having the conversation specifically in like maybe the first or second episode about the mists and like what like when when vin was able to see through them for the first time and i do remember you kind of having that thought and like going through and i'm like the tin lets her see through it and you're like oh okay and you just kind of just kind of went with it after that point. And it's like, yeah, we all kind of just go with it, don't we? <laughs> we just buy yeah. in. I don't remember but, it from that, that far back. I remember it yeah. from like thinking about it. With, well, I think it, I, maybe it was I think in the will of Ascension, you also brought it up okay. at some point. Because I, I think it was kind of a it was a couple of times 
you you brought up. I mean, we were talking about the mists all the time through all these books. So it's, you know, yeah, always it's there. Natural. I, yeah. I say things and forget them constantly. So true. True. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. Well, cool. Mm-hmm. That's the end of this week's reading. This has been a long episode. It's the longest one for a while for sure. I hope you guys all have enjoyed it with that next week. We finish The Hero of Ages as well as Era 1 of Mistborn. So from here to the end, baby, it's all game. Here to the end. It's all fair it. game. Not next week, but the week following in our wrap-up episode. Feel free. We talked about this previously. Send us any questions, anything that you want us to answer. We've got a good thread going in the Discord. I've got a bunch on Twitter. I've got a couple in my in the Instagram DMs. So we've we've got some questions, but if you've got kind of another weekish to get those in to us week and a half ish and yeah then we'll be answering those so that's where we'll leave you for this week thank you as ever to our producers tim and andrew for helping us keep the show going you can check out all of the links in our show notes where you can find our schedule patreon previous episodes websites all of the social media accounts in one very nice convenient location yeah, and as PJ said, make sure you give those a check-see. And if you haven't listened to it, go listen to the previous episode where we talk through what we're going to be doing in the future as well as what we think Lightbringer and Red God relate to. Give that a listen. If you want to send us any of those questions or anything like that that we said earlier, Words Whiskey Pod on Twitter, Instagram, or Reddit, or you can email us directly at wordsandwhiskeyshow at gmail.com. You can contact us at patreon.com forward slash wordsandwhiskey if you want to join our patronship and join us on the Discord and have conversations with us we chat a lot there we're there pretty frequently you can also get merch at t public we even have baby onesies so you can get a baby onesie with literally little scamp on it check them out it's a it's a couple of cool designs we have a new one that'll be coming out soon made by the wonderful the illustrious pb doodles that we should be getting up there probably near the end of era one maybe the beginning of era two so i've got it i just need to do it but It'll be great. Very cool. Beyond that, make sure you leave all the podcasts that you love a little review ski. If you haven't already, give them give them that five star, give them that comment or else Aaron's going to come for you. Can you believe like in in a couple of months, you guys are all going to get threatened by Aaron every single episode to do this. I'm the kind one here. You're about to get bad copped really hard. (laughs) Oh, it's going to be good. (laughs) Yeah, it'll be it'll be very funny. All right. Thank you all so much for the support and we'll, uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. 